0: You know, in Bitcoin circles, we say, fix the money, fix the world. Is that like where we should focus our energies to have this outsized return? And if not, then where? Where should we be focusing our our energies?
1: Yeah, uh, the continual Hans Hoppe, as you mentioned, I think he he gave a great uh, advice. And if you're talking about like changing legitimacy structures and narratives, he thought the most important thing you can do is ridiculize uh, but in a sense, it's not like mean, it's just like showing that the emperor has no clothes. Right. Just speaking it out. And the they monitor the satire. Making the fun uh, of the right people. In a sense, <laughs> not taking yourself too seriously. So yeah. just say as it is. Yeah.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the What is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard Again, that's WolfNYC, dot ccom Rahim, talk out again. Welcome to the What Is Money show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, We're sitting here in Riga doing this in person, which is awesome. been talking about this conversation for a while. You have recommended some very interesting reading, which we're going to go through today. Uh, And just by way of quick introduction, you are the last... Austrian economist in the entire tradition in Austria. Uh, you're the author of over 15 books and you've been teaching universities in German speaking areas in Austria economics and related topics for over 15 years. Um, so quite the impressive background and I think the right guy to talk to about some of these big ideas. Um, maybe before we get into everything though, we could just start with a little bit about you, like who you are, uh, what your journey into this world was, how you got into Austrian economics, and then how you ultimately got into Bitcoin. Mm-hmm.
1: I have Persian heritage, but I've grown up in Austria, and uh, I originally studied nuclear physics. I'm a nuclear physicist by training, was studied economics and sociology as well and then my working in physics i visited the united states and i was surprised to see that there was an austrian tradition of economics because i hadn't heard about it at mm. university in vienna uh, so there, there was a surprise i mean i i've heard about some of the proponents uh, of course but uh, it wasn't clear that it was a living tradition mm. that has a relevance for today and not just some historical fact mm. uh, and so that of course increased my interest in it and so um, i have become a student of Austrian economics. I had uh, the honour to be a student of, of two of, of the last, uh, at the time, teaching uh, students uh, within the tradition was Roland Barber, German student of Hayek, and uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, mm. student of Rothbard, a student uh, of Mises, uh, and I've been teaching for a while Austrian economics for, learned a lot about it. Uh, Austrian economics also brought me to Bitcoin. So nowadays it's the other way around. Usually mm-hmm. the interest in Bitcoin leads to Austrian economics. Back in the days, it was really going from Austrian economics uh, to Bitcoin. Very cool. What, how, why switch from nuclear physics into economics? What was the inspiration for that? The natural sciences are very uh, differentiated in the way that you have very specialized jobs to do there. Uh, uh, and you deal with the simplest phenomena that are possible to deal with. Uh, and uh, I become interested in physics as then in the sort of sizes and complex phenomena uh, I think are more interesting. And then in particular, the complex phenomena that are related to human beings living together mm-hmm. and cooperating, um, coordinating, because there's such a huge leverage. I mean, if... Uh, as an engineer or physicist, you seem to work on very small parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, there is an outsized impact of wrong ideas in the social side. There's much more leverage, I find much more important, mm-hmm. <laughs> to strive for better understanding, better ideas in yeah. those complex phenomena that really matter <laughs> to people. Yeah. And uh, questions of life and death, eventually.
0: Very cool. What is there much... Do, do you think there's much benefit you get from having studied nuclear physics and studying the social sciences? Or are they two totally different distinct
1: spheres for you? That's one huge benefit that I'm not easily impressed by physicists. Ah, okay. <laughs> natural scientists. right. You know he call it something like white collar phenomena like the doctor,
0: oh, right, the.. Doctor. Doctors. <laughs> so, yeah. so the physics envy that Keynesian economics suffers from, you see through that, yeah <laughs> very useful um okay that's cool i feel like i'm sitting across the table from a very highly qualified genius so i'm excited to wrestle some of these big ideas um the first you recommended a number of really good books uh or written works the first of which was the theory of complex phenomena by hayek which is just i guess an essay that was published as an article as you said um you also recommended theory and history by mises which is an, an interpretation of social and economic evolution is the subtitle to that one. And the third one you recommended, which I didn't get to read, but hopefully we can discuss in the future. Um, the, the author's name? Eric Fögelin? Yes. Or the last dress. Yes. So we're not going to talk about that today, but I think yes. I should just mention it. Um, and maybe you could tell us why you recommended these three. Uh, for a little bit of backstory, we met at a dinner in Prague, and we started talking about the relationship between psychology
1: and economics, and then we said we'd have this conversation. And I think you recommended these readings based on that. Exactly. Uh-huh. I never recommend books. If so you ask me, can you recommend a book? I uh-huh. wouldn't uh, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, uh-huh. It all depends on what are you interested in. Right. And then all the things you, you mentioned, you were interested in. What just uh, I, I don't even remember. Yeah. <laughs> the conversation is just. I thought oh, okay, you should have a look at that. I think you have a look at that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then I think I was recommended to Carl Gustav Jung uh, yes. as well. What else? They were talking about Wittgenstein. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: Yeah, and so, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Jungian psychology and Austrian economics, they sort of came up together to some extent for a while. Like, mm-hmm. there were, that the same thinkers were in the same place, is that correct?
1: Yes, Uh they are like, there's one Austrian school of economics, but I would say three Austrian schools of psychology, mm. and Jung is one <laughs> bad. proponent of a direction coming. as a student of Freud, and then as a follow-up with Freud, as all of his students uh, have eventually almost. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's like the discovery of the unconscious, uh, mm. I'd say. as so a Freudian insight, uh, but Jung pursues this in, 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 I think, a better direction than Freud's. Uh, mm. And there's uh, another one would be Frankl. Uh, Victor Frankl. Ur- yeah, it's Ur- okay. psychologist, or very interesting, promising approach to psychological phenomena. And that's another tradition. So a right. different one. But there's a different schools emerging out of the crazy situation of old Vienna. Right. 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 Well, I think it was Jung that said, people don't have ideas,
0: ideas have people. So it's weird how <laughs> these, these ideas grip yeah. groups of people at the yes. same time. We often see inventors inventing similar things at the same time, even when they're not mm. in connection with each other. So it's strange how people are connected in that way. Mm. Um, and what are like what are the relevant contact points between Jungian psychology and Austrian economics? Like, what is it?
1: What is the overlap? I guess in your view, um, it's li- little known, but uh, Jung wrote a little bit about economics and political issues, in particular in, I think it was rather speeches he gave, and then he rolled up mm-hmm. a little bit about that, and there really sounds exactly like an Austrian economist mm. point <laughs> uh, he makes. And there's a big overlap uh, overlap with Eric Fergelin, Eric uh-huh. and it's a kind of um, psychopathology of political collectives mm-hmm. and political ideas, uh, and that arises out of themology, which was a branch mm-hmm. that Mises proposed, uh, how to understand psychology in a better way and understand the historical sciences and what their role should be. Uh, yeah, it's about understanding the unconscious <laughs> of human mm-hmm. beings and, and their, uh, behavior as, as opposed to their action, uh, mm-hmm. I'd say, and, uh, uh, so there's, there's a go-to religion. Eric Erich was a member of the Mises Circle uh, in Vienna. Mm. And Jung was not, but uh, uh, I mean, it could be that the same ideas come up <laughs> yeah. uh, at the same time by different people, uh, uh, but uh, I, I think it's not surprising. So I, I think he's part, Jung is part of this interdisciplinary project, uh, right. and I think the Austrian School of Economics is, is part of, and the most understanding and coping with modernity. Uh,
0: yeah. Almost like we, as a, the human enterprise is waking up to the realities of complexity theory, right? Versus moving out of the Newtonian worldview into something, you know, the billiard ball model of the universe, A causes B, B causes C, to this, oh, things are much more complex than that, right? There's feedback, feed forward, loops.
1: everything's interconnected. Interestingly, that it also emerges in physics uh, in Vienna, that's well. Oh, really? Okay. Complexity thinking- theory? Yes, a uh, part of it, I mean, comes from thermodynamics. Uh, yes. So part of in quantum uh, physics, of course. Right. Um, yeah, Tr- Schrodinger. Uh, yeah, uh, Schrodinger.
0: So we as a species are kind of waking mm-hmm. up to uh, the old paradigm is limited or low resolution, and mm-hmm. things are much more complex, and then
1: you see it manifest in psychology and economics and physics. Yes, so, yes. But there's also an impression of crisis, like something is... Yes, going the wrong direction, calamity, awaiting. Yes, that's also important to know for the emergence of the Austrian school and that's how those are related. They are like trying to figure out what's going on. Right, right. right, right. People are turning crazy. It was like Vienna was the capital of neurosis, uh, and it's like every crazy idea at the time met at the same coffee shops mm-hmm. and salons in Vienna and was really trying to figure out what's going on. And that crisis point was the 20th century, right? Yes. World right. War I, World War II, II. II. a yeah. new century, but exactly. uh, uh, in the late 19th century, it became apparent uh, to the most astute observers in Vienna mm-hmm. that there was an issue with going from like world traditional society to modernity, and mm-hmm. uh, some were very pessimistic, others were optimistic, but, right. but most astute observers knew that something, uh, we, we need to understand something right. about society and, and human nature. And the pessimists were right, mostly.
0: Unfortunately, yeah, the short term at me. Yes, in the short term. Okay, maybe we could start with something simple. And you mentioned two terms that a lot of people would brush over as maybe synonymous, but in mm-hmm. economics, they're not: behavior versus action. Mm-hmm. How do we distinct distinguish between be- human behavior and human action? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Uh, well, uh, behavior is, uh, or, or let's start with human action for human action. Uh, and it's many, uh, Ludwig von Mises, really uh, pointed the finger to that and say, uh, and all things when we're there observing, uh, look like behavior, but we know something from ourselves. We know that we have ends and we know that we uh, employ means to achieve our ends. And uh, if an observer doesn't know us, looks at us, might say some things don't make sense uh-huh. uh, to him. Uh, uh. uh. But uh, by knowing that human beings act and are not determined to behave in a certain way, and certainly don't behave like particles, uh, um, you have a deeper understanding. Yeah. But of course, there are parts of human behavior, either if you're observing them, because, it's, it's, uh, and uh, past events, mm-hmm. of course, you can only observe something that has already happened. Sure. And a lot of history is like observations passed for secondhand, second hand and people you can't ask anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they will be, like I say, behavior, observed behavior. Um, and uh, there you can only see some patterns and try to figure out with your praxeolog- praxeological understanding, with your knowing that human beings have ends and mm-hmm. have had ends in the past uh, and maybe very different ones and things you don't agree with and things you have a hard time understanding. But still, that helps a bit uh, figuring out, but it's not everything. So, uh, uh, Ludwig von Mises thought uh, it's best to look at history as something different because it always sees like the observable mm-hmm. pattern, the remainders uh, mm-hmm. of what has happened. Uh, uh, and you should approach it empathically and try to understand, uh, knowing that they were human beings and they lived their life and they strive. Uh, they were striving for something. Um uh, but it's not you can not deduce now from what has happened, uh, and he thought we should generalize it. Uh, it's uh, he knew that it's not just the outside observations, but there are also, of course, we have diaries, we have dreams, we have symbols. It's all that, and that's what he called timology. It's from Timus. It's like the spiritedness. Uh, it's a translation. Um, yeah, Timus originally the Greeks thought that as an organ. Mm-hmm. and brings about your temper and then how you are as personality, hmm. like your personal expression, um, your spiritedness, if, if you like the term. Uh, hmm. And uh, he thought, yes, we have to understand it in this more general way. It's not just outside observations. We are not automata. channel uh, right. general interest. How have uh, people expressed their temper? What is it like? Uh, what are the moods coming from? Uh, so more it's behavior, but also looking at the unconscious um, and subjective and ideas, uh, for example. Uh, but there you can really deduce it's a kind of figuring out, uh, observing and finding patterns, uh, maybe. Um, and yeah, that's epistemologically is a different aspect, looking at things. And he thought it's a separate field. Uh, of economics and it's a a separate kind of science a separate way to do science Uh, it shouldn't be confused
0: yeah so behavior being something more reflexive right Mm -hmm. the doctor taps your knee with a hammer and your leg kicks out
1: that's a yeah, a behavior. behavior, yeah. But with yeah. human beings, there is not that much, so there's a tradition called behaviorism uh-huh. um, that exaggerates this component. Things like almost everything is behavior, or right. everything is a reaction to something. Right. Uh, and there, the approach of Mises uh, is the opposite. Right. Say, no, a lot of things, they look like behaviors, it's better to see like behavior as things where you don't know why someone is doing yeah. it. Yeah. Or so the reason behind it, it's a cause, maybe. Yes, uh, behind it like someone was pushed and he fell uh, right that there'll be a cause but of course you can never be sure if it's not like someone acting or a yeah. game uh, right. and all that sense making and meaning comes from your understanding that you're a human being and you can have empathy for someone mm-hmm. else and try to figure out try to understand okay what did you want to achieve he right. A fall down it was an accident yeah. so he trying to show something yeah. want to prove a point it a the fight uh all those yeah. questions so it's the
0: the self-reflection the reflection upon ourselves we know that we have means and ends we're purposefully striving towards yeah. valued aims mm-hmm. that we can uh extrapolate that other people are doing the same thing right yeah. so
1: there's and then that opens up this whole world of mm. praxeology yeah it, it, it's a very small thing that we have mm-hmm. but it, it's one and it's only for this par subsection of complex phenomena which are related to human beings there S- yeah, phenomena human phenomena there we have an advantage as compared to everything else right we are the thing that we try to understand so we have yes insights we can have empathy we can have understanding right. and go for uh, similar experiences uh, and that helps. It's not a lot. Uh, yeah. Still, it's it's a huge difference. Yeah.
0: Well, what is the quote that man is both the clay and the sculptor kind of thing, right? Which is why life is suffering. Um, and so we're kind of like, and I guess this distinguishes man from animal too, that we have these plans or purposes or yes. we use means to pursue ends, whereas so far as we can tell about animals, they're just kind of, they carry out an evolutionary pattern that doesn't change very much over time. Whereas yes. our cultures can change rapidly over time, right? So yeah, and we have freedom.
1: Uh, have, that comes with it, responsibility. Yes. It's we can make mistakes. We make lots of mistakes mm-hmm. and we feel something inside. We think, yes. like, oh, why are I did all wrong thing? Right. But animal usually doesn't happen, of course. I right. make mistakes in a sense, but there's a responsibility. In yes. You got caught by the predator. It's so all your fault in a sense. It's part of a program. Mm-hmm. It's part of... A, yeah. Uh, about our biosphere. Yeah. And for human beings, there's a lot of pressure on our shoulders, a lot of burden. So fr- freedom is a huge burden. Uh, there yeah. was an important insight by Farco, uh, ah. uh tangentially, uh, he thought it's it's better to focus on responsibility than freedom because most people, if they hear freedom, it's like, yeah, I yeah. like freedom, of course. <laughs> but then in practice, we see like most people prefer, or they don't really prefer <laughs> freedom yeah. if it comes with the whole package. <laughs> That's right. responsibility. Right like be a sovereign uh, uh yeah. person that uh, is able to take responsibility for his acts that's why he can have freedom or she can have the freedom right yeah, a, so, otherwise i mean it's just random acts or, or it's always you're a weak theme. you can always blame someone it's not my fault yeah yeah and do it uh yeah yeah
0: the responsibility maybe there's like a pareto principle thing there where you have like 80 percent followers 20 percent leaders kind of thing and yeah, freedom necessitates responsibility because, like, okay, you have all these options at your disposal, but what are you going to choose that actually benefits yourself in the long run and ideally benefits others? Because one of the points Mises makes, I thought this was brilliant, okay, we all use means to pursue ends, but what is the common means that almost all of us need? Mm-hmm. And that is social cooperation, right? That is society, right? Like, it, no matter what end you want to achieve, mm. unless you're a, a monk or an ascetic, you know, living completely in solitude somewhere, meditating yeah. on a mountain, which very few of us are, you need other humans. You need social cooperation. You need specialization,
1: division of labor, all of these things. That's the optimism in Ludwig Mises, mm. I was literally disappointed <laughs> during his lifetime about... Uh, 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 I think in the long term, it held up, uh, and he'd say so, and he'd say, unfortunately, it uh, can go on for a long time, Uh, this kind of fallacies, uh, usually it's the zero-sum fallacies, uh, and he thought like every human being should be able to understand, not maybe conceptually, by figuring out the alternative, and if you really see the cost Of not cooperating, like interventionism destroying the basis of cooperation, and you'd feel it, you feel it as hunger, you feel it as death of your children, war. You would not consciously choose that. Yes. You may say the words and you utter the phrases that you like that uh, kind of existence, but he thought most human beings, apart from some pathological Mm -hmm. indices, he thought most human beings would be aligned in the ends, uh, in those like crucial ends of like choosing health over the seas and choosing life or what they have. he writes as a kind of general mutual understanding that there should be and he thought the task of the economist just like clarifying that making it visible to people right. like making visible the invisible and mm-hmm. Henry Bastia yeah. said one predecessor of the Austrian school yeah um and like make people realize that ideas have consequences and yes. whether you really like the consequences or not
0: yeah the it's a great point. And, um, it maybe rolling back or circling back to the 20th century crisis, wasn't that an attempt? Cause obviously Mises is very anti-state, right? That statism is a, a lot of the problem and driving a lot of these false ideologies in the world. Was it people treating other people as these automata? I think is the term you use where you can just implement yeah. the plan and move people what are you know they're, they're pieces on a chessboard effectively yes where you're totally discrediting discrediting their autonomy right they're actual they're they're the fact that they are human actors right they're not yeah. human behaviorists or mm-hmm. they're not just behaving they're acting i guess yes is that what drove that crisis is this idea that we could somehow top down organize the world and that just um failed to see the reality of this this bottom up um you know individual selection of means at valued ends. Mm-hmm. Is that what drove that crisis?
1: Uh, it's part of it. Uh mm-hmm. yes, part part of it. Um, uh, but the crisis is manifold. It's the change from um an order and it, wasn't order, it was an order. It's more like and say the food all European know. order uhities and, and so religion as well as a strong religious traditions that give meaning to people and and give them a place in this order and they can accept the order they are living in the kind of just or god-willed order with all problems there are Uh, they are not looking for utopia Um, and then uh, there are there have been rapid changes um in particular it was the rate of innovation going up um Mm. And, and one uh, important change is when innovation is uh, above a certain threshold, you can't do what your father has been doing and your grandfather has been doing, mm-hmm. which makes it usually easier. And you have inherited roles, mm-hmm. your functional roles, you know your place in society, you know that you're useful, you just mm-hmm. be hardworking as your father was and you follow the guidance of course of the old. You can still learn something useful from your grandfather. Mm-hmm. If there's too much change, the world is so different, it looks like you can learn nothing useful from grandfather. You're the one teaching them, like right. helping figuring out a smartphone or right. a computer. Uh, and then it's just stories uh, and leads to a kind of skepticism. And then it leads to a kind of pride and saying, okay, mm-hmm. we are reshaping the world. It's just the future. The past does not interested in yeah. us anymore. It's not relevant anymore but you need the link to the past for the structure and the order of society, at least as it was, uh, or as in in most societies, giving you an idea where you're coming from, where you're going to, why is it meaningful, uh, in a way to to live that kind of life. And when it disappears, you get a vacuum. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, organized religion disappears, in a sense, is challenged, is challenged by modern sciences. Uh, It seems also backward and old-fashioned. And some people try to grasp on panic in panic because they realize, they are right, uh, that uh, if you change something which you haven't understood yet, everything may come right, all crashing down. That that was actually what what Emperor Francis Joseph uh, in early 20th century, in late 19th century, Austria came to the conclusion. So it was extremely conservative, uh, not in a good sense, but the reasoning was, was it was not so bad he thought, I, I don't know uh, what will be the impact. I see everything is changing. Let's not change what well, doesn't have to be changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that looks ridiculous uh, to the young people in particular. It starts looking ridiculous. It's like people larping. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great term, great yes. ex- <laughs> Uh it, it looks like larping. It had like the fetal order and the nice costumes and a lot of aestheticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but you feel it's not authentic anymore. It's not, I mean, they look like the big warriors. Yeah, because it's not relevant. It's not relevant. It's not that kind of military full structure. not useful anymore. Uh, and it looks like uh, acting. Yes. Uh, and then it comes crashing down. I mean, what comes after it seems worse uh, is like the, the pride, the, the worst people usually. you uh, know, Okay, I know what's right. I'll tell you. I'm demagogues. Re- I'm demagogues. Yes scientists yes. uh, which stop at a certain understanding of science and I think they figured it out all. Right. So there exists this idea, everything is solved in physics, we don't know waste. It. Total, everything Totalizing could, knowledge is totalitarian, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then figuring out, okay, we, we can handle complex systems, we are technocrats, yeah. technocratic approach, yeah. let's just handle it, we'll be social engineers, that's the term. Uh, Um, And that appears, of course, if you don't have uh, legitimate narratives anymore of how you should behave, then some people come up and let let me through. I'm the doctor. I'm the (laughs) LEA. How to fix everything. Um, And and that was a dangerous mix. Uh, And a lot of cranks, uh, of course, crazy people who either thought they were the wisest uh, or religious leaders, pseudo-religions emerging. And of course, uh, Hitler and Stalin met right. in Vienna oh. the same coffee shop. And there's like gurus, kind uh, of really, really crazy uh, pseudo religious idealists. Yeah. Which right. yeah. from the personality uh, are very odd and surprising. That was a stupid observation by Jung, Carl Gustav Jung. Yeah. He thought that, I look at Hitler, he's like a really shy and mediocre person. If you talk to him in person Mm -hmm. and then he goes on stage and he becomes the kind of medium you thought, you know, this in the tradition of a religious medium, like bringing forth the message of the grand state god. uh, to subjects, giving certainty to people in a time of uncertainty, being kind of know it all. I figured it all out. I know who is to blame. I know how we win that. Right. Um, and and uh, of course, you not only had it in politics, but in, in the sciences as well. So that's also where a bit of the skepticism of Hayek uh, comes from towards. Uh, progressive scientific traditions, enlightenment even. So he mm-hmm. thinks there's a wrong kind of enlightenment, the French one mm-hmm. in, in particular, as mm-hmm. a top-down enlightenment where we are so enlightened, we know everything, and you the uneducated, unwashed with teach you how to do it. And, and he thinks that's a very dangerous uh, tradition. Uh and it would even be better to be a conservative, like not changing anything than following these false yeah. uh, uh, preachers. So
0: that's so interesting. The root, then, or the initial driver of this rapid social change, then, is the actual te- technological paradigm. Yeah. Right? It's the innovation yeah. that all of a sudden, the life of the young living generation is so much different than the past that it starts to break those ties. Right? Instead yeah. of being a blacksmith like your father and grandfather has been for many generations back, all of a sudden, you're working in digital technology or something. And then and and the so people that are
1: successful, you can figure out. I mean, where is he coming from? Like, only right.
0: he's
1: <laughs> one of the richest persons in Vienna, and you've never right. heard about the family. like, it comes from, from right. the last corner of the empire, and it just doesn't make sense. to people they have a hard time understanding. Uh, yeah, what makes you successful in a changing, dynamic world? What are those people? Is it kind of kind of conspiracy? Yeah, are, are it mostly? Is it mostly Jews, or is it mostly like who is it? Mostly the Germans, among the Polish, and, and then it starts like trying to class people, or, right? Trying to make sense of of, of the change, You're right? But it, even that, it's more based on
0: the kind of idiosyncratic nature of innovation, right? Like, or yes. we discover a thing here, and then someone gets really rich, and all of a sudden their new money and old money is less relevant over time. So that yeah. like the the intertemporal structure of society starts to fall apart. Yes. Right? The linkages to yes. the past. Yes. Yes.
1: And I'm mm. I, I I hope that it's not really just indigenously uh change uh that that's that societies wouldn't be able to handle change. Uh, that yeah. kind of positive in negative yeah. change. I think uh it's uh due to exaggerations uh you see you already have change but then you have kind of leverage on change and it's an unjust leverage i think money plays a very important role there and mm-hmm. uh, of course it's, it's not a coincidence that we have like the, it's called the gründerkrach this is the founders crash uh, in the late 19th century 1873 mm-hmm. and after that almost everyone loses trust in the market economy mm-hmm. so you see like there's people rising and then everything crashing down a lot of mm-hmm. camps uh, And of course, there's a fiat money inflated uh, bubble Mm -hmm. that emerges uh, and uh, it takes the dynamic, it feeds a little bit the dynamic, but it exaggerates it. Right. Uh, And then so then it's even harder to just keep up with it. I mean, you wouldn't have a hard time understanding that the train is a better technology for or a better means where you the, end yes. but if it's like them a, a bubble of trains emerging sure. that or most of it will be shut down yep. uh, yeah. and or yeah. uh, then it, then it's much harder and I think that you have an exaggerated uh, uh economic change due to the fiat uh says uh, credit expansion mm-hmm. that's unpacked um, credit expansion um uh, confidence games in particular mm-hmm. then uh with uh, government guarantees, uh, government debt entering right. the picture, uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, you have ideological exaggerations. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, one way to react to change is becoming impatient and saying, yeah, change is great. It's not fast enough. And mm-hmm. then socialism started out mm-hmm. as, yeah, capitalism is much better than a full order. But bad thing about it is it's too slow. It's mm-hmm. not enough wealth for everyone. Let's, right. like, let's fix it. It makes it even more dynamic, accelerationist, uh, approaches which are utopian and then it seems then you have counter-reactions of course it's like uh, i've seen so much change now you're saying it's it's too little and it's great and i should be happy yeah that everything is falling apart uh give me a break uh, and then you have the counter-reactions of course and, and yeah. it's like i think an ideology is a lot like you have a reaction to something that you don't understand and you have a counter-reaction to that and you're fighting yeah yes. and both are in a way right of course mm-hmm. change is not neutral in a sense sure. something is very positive something is very negative you right. know, figure it out uh uh but the question is always i mean can you come up with a better system it doesn't make sense to come up with a better system can you have control change or innovation no. things like that uh, and uh, they come off on the wrong premise uh, yes the, the process of creative destruction right when you are an
0: italian shoemaker multi, you know, seventh generation or whatever and then there's a shoe factory that opens up down the street that's very destructive to you and your lineage and your livelihood yeah. but it's also really good in advancing human economization so that i can see where those individuals then become susceptible to being sold these false ideologies yeah. It's like, oh, capitalism ruined your business. Yeah, yeah. What you need is
1: socialism instead. Yeah. But uh, and that's the insert point for the demagogues, right? Yes, yeah. yes. But typically, it's not the craftsmen. A mm-hmm. good craftsman, a good shoemaker, will find his way, right? Uh, he'll use that, and then probably he'll he'll become the factory owner, uh, yeah, or, or enter some other. Right. Usually, it's like people already um, don't really have useful occupations. So mm-hmm. a lot of it was the old feudal. Uh, nobility Mm -hmm. their sons like uh, minority complexes uh, and so on uh uh, so a former upper class that can't find a new place in uh, a new structure. That's so, uh, the so danger where it comes from. Uh, so pretty privileged people. It's not like the downtrodden, the poor shoemaker. That's right, really okay. the ferment of socialism. It's rich guys. It's rich sons uh, at leisure, yeah. still wealthy, yeah. but the prestige of their position changes, and they feel uncertainty. I think they. Could, Are we going through that now, do you think, with yes, the, yes, the I,
0: politicians and traditional political structures now facing irrelevance in a digital paradigm, do you think we'll see something yes, like that?
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm So I'm partial here, because I agree with the optimism you mentioned for Mises, that he thought in general people would see the results of, hey, look, they tried the false ideology over here, catastrophe, and... Mm-hmm. We tried life, liberty, property over here. We had success, so obviously, let's adopt this model. I think I agree with that. Actually, I think most people could see that and understand that. But they're fighting. We're always fighting this fight against demagogues selling false ideologies, right? Like even today, we hear a lot of the problems in the world being blamed as late-stage capitalism, for instance. Mm, Yes, people really buy into that. Yeah, they buy into that notion that people having exclusive rights to the fruit of their labor and trading with other people that have exclusive rights to the fruits of their labor somehow creates this catastrophic situation we have in the world. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I think as Austrian economists and Bitcoiners would largely argue, no, it's statism, it's central banking, it's these things that are causing, um, the falling apart. So what can we do if you're always going to face that? Like how, is it just education? Is it just, trumpeting more like no actually we need more capitalism not less we need stronger property rights not own nothing and be happy like how can we penetrate the mind it seems like it's always the minds of the young too right the people that are most impressionable that are targeted with these pseudo-religious ideologies what can we do i guess to to or we're just always going to be stuck in this kind of pendulum swing or is there a way to
1: actually yeah progress closer to, to Mises optimism uh as an individual, or well, you can't plan for a kind of change. I mean, how am I reaching the minds of millions or billions of people? Uh-huh. Uh, the uh, best advice if you really wanted to do that would be start a religion. Yeah. And I'll watch you fail, and uh, it'll be okay, and maybe the least harm <laughs> uh, brought about. So it's not the demagogues, it's not like some evil persons emerging. There's a real need for this kind of guidance, and yeah. it's more spiritual guidance, Uh so it's a religious function, uh, and I think it was an important insight, and mainly due to Eric Fugelin, who really understand, uh, analyzed ideas for history, and he figured out uh, that most of politics really should be understand, understood from the realm of theology. Political uh, mm. uh, ideas replace the religious ideas of right. the past. Uh, they're all like struck narratives uh, around meaning for orders and uh, system structure, societal structures. Uh, that's the point about it people need that they are looking for some. tell them uh what a good order looks like right uh, and then what's their place within that order um so any anything where you uh, cope with life in a good yeah. way and be a good example mm-hmm. is helpful because like the opposite uh, offering a false panacea oh. just follow my words uh, right so I thought to the individuals, try to be a good example, try to cope with life, which is a huge challenge, the only uh, individual one. Um, and uh, yeah, I realized there are some things in human nature, and part of that is a kind of spiritual longing uh, and um, and uh, being understood and addressed. Uh, so I, I think it's wrong to just address people, okay, you are stupid, I, I got to fix you, <laughs> In case you have that need, try uh, so to understand uh, compassionately mm-hmm. where the need comes from and then figure out how you can show that's the wrong means <laughs> to, uh, to ends that uh, are there. Uh, and that's the only thing they can do. But uh, you can do. But most change, of course, I mean, the individual, you never know what's your impact on the future. Yeah. Um uh, usually it's negligible, sometimes it's outside, historic, but right. you can plan for that, such as yeah. lead a good life. Maybe you have an outsized impact, uh, maybe not that you don't know. Most change comes rather from, let's say, technology. Uh, yeah. This is like figuring out new ways that can be copied by other people by seeing, okay, oh, that's a good means. Can I have yes. the as well? Right. Let me do it. And yeah. not so much conviction or like preaching uh, to right. people. Uh, to convince them to pick up something. The preaching has a different function. So yeah. Fulfilling your spiritual needs, uh, giving you a narrative structure within which you can fit uh, in the order of things, in the order of society. Yeah, So there's a different way uh, to look at it. So don't think that politics or political debate mm-hmm. is about really uh, convincing someone of a better argument. But there's a hope. There's uh, a hope. That was also part of Mises' optimism. He thought that everyone, or uh, almost everyone, should be capable of argumentation. Mm. Uh, but he also knew, of course, it's a very tough discipline, and and it needs some the proper surroundings. and I think it's the salon atmosphere is like a friendly kind. Of friendliness, you yeah. are you are in the living room of someone who trusts you mm-hmm. and you can be intimate in a sense mm-hmm. and, and uh, you can have wrong answers and stupid questions and stuff like that and can be open-minded because you know it's not a different interest splashing there mm. uh, otherwise uh, you can really have a, a debate in the sense that you argue for something and try to convince someone mm. because, uh, usually it's interests and uh, that we have to appreciate uh, human beings are material they have material interests and they are inflicting uh, mm-hmm. and then of course it's all your anticipation i mean will i rather am i rather beneficiary of the structure that i live in and the narratives of it or not are you a threat to that right. uh, so I'm, I'm not sure yet if i feel that that's uh, as good as it gets for me then yeah, of course. <laughs> I've been not that open minded to, to change in um, things like the monetary system. Right, right, right. Be open minded to Bitcoin. Uh, so I think one general indication is how privileged are you. <laughs> right. So this is why wealthy
0: people would tend to be more conservative in the traditional sense, right? That they yeah. preserve the existing structure that has benefited them. Yes. Whereas people that are less wealthy would be more liberal in the traditional sense that they want change right hierarchical change and such
1: yes well, unfortunately change. the term conservative uh is misleading and Hayek wrote a article on that of course what people then are preserving and try to preserving if they preserve a privilege or structure uh is uh, a detrimental change of mm-hmm. dynamic. dynamics not something as it is uh It's a dynamic system Uh that, of course, intervenes and changes uh, and makes good things disappear as well. Uh, So that's a kind of wrong preservation of, I'd say, privileged structures, Mm -hmm. unjust structures. And
0: is this, as we're talking, what keeps coming up for me here is the Nietzschean death of God, right? That he sort of saw this all coming. Yes. It's like the the religious guiding light or the religious um, institutional structure that has guided humanity up until this point was crumbling. Yes. And that uh, nature abhors the vacuum, right? So something has to fill that power vacuum that's created. And I I think he said something like, well, you know, we've killed God and we'll never find enough water to wash away all the blood. Almost, you know, presaging the 20th century in many ways, what? Is it, are we, we need a mythology, we need a story, we need a guiding narrative of some kind. And I guess religion sort of played that role in the past. And as it crumbled, we now have like the nation state, but then the nation state comes with all these pseudo religious ideologies, right? You know, God kings, if you will, right? Hitler, Malin, I'm sorry, Mao, Stalin, Lenin, et cetera. Um, It seems useful that if we could, look at ourselves in that way and like oh we are these storytelling animals we're animals with plans that we could start to understand maybe we'd be able to see through some of that bullshit Mm -hmm. um so what is and the other interesting part so it's like okay we need the guiding narrative or mythology but there's also this i don't do we call this a material dialectic that as technology changes and the way we relate to the world changes actually changes our our narratives too. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. and I'm I'm reflecting here on Ruchia Eliad. He talked about he studied mythologies across history. And he said one of the main things that changes the primary drivers that change mythology are what how their technology changes. Yes. So they go from hunting and gathering to agriculture, all their gods yes. change, all their stories change. Technology changes the
1: structure of society and yeah. And struck the order of society is closely related to the mythology. And, yes. Uh, that, that was a lot of insight by Vogelin. Uh, and of course, it's a big part of what Jung tried to figure out how mythology <laughs> plays into that. What's the role of mythology, the proper role of mythology? Yeah. So I mean, it seems
0: like if we could maybe present human beings in that light and people could start to see themselves so like, oh, we're these tool making, planning creatures. And then as the tools changed, the plans and the the stories change. So then maybe we'd be less susceptible to these demagogues. It's like, oh, there's, there's no one guy with all the answers, right? It's like, yes. actually, we just all have plans and questions and we're trying to figure it out as we go. Um, I don't know if that maybe presumes too much about human beings. You said to Mises that he thought everyone was capable of rational argumentation. I don't know about that, actually. Like, I see a lot of people that are very much just want to believe the louder one, right? Or the one that's mm-hmm. using more ad hominem or acts more confident or whatever it is. Like, there seems to be this big proclivity for, I don't know, 80% of people that just follow that guy versus just follow Mises. That's making this yes. sound rational. And uh,
1: Mises would say those are preferences. So they have higher ranked needs there. Yeah. That they have to fulfill uh, first. But the potential is still there. I mean, if those needs that are expressed by pseudo-debates like, being right because it's in my interest to be right, and showing how oh, you're foolish because you're of the the wrong uh, kind of interest group. Uh, if that's fulfilled, if you take it apart, it still say human beings by nature have potential to seek knowledge. So that was Aristotle mm-hmm. said, and it's of course it's not an empirical fact about uh, human beings. Right, it's. Uh, Conceptual understanding of human nature, then we are capable of something. And we have a potential. It doesn't mean everyone reaches every, <laughs> right, uh, right. every time. Yeah. Uh, no one reaches it all the, in the older time. Yeah. But something you can long for. Uh,
0: and may, maybe this is then somewhat of a carryover of our tribal past that we still looked for that like strongman leader. Yeah. And so people will just, you know, if Hitler's up there giving the impassioned speech, you're just like, you buy into that. Yes. No matter what the content of the argument, it's just yeah. because of how he's presenting it. Yeah. Um, But we can change over time then. So you think the- that general, in general human beings could become more following, more likely to follow rational argumentative leaders rather than just these rhetorical people capable of rhetor- rhetorical flourish like a Hitler or something. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh lot in politics, but it depends on how you see politics and, and uh Carl Gustav Jung thought that politics itself is a problem and many honors mm-hmm. of the Austria school thought so. As my teacher Olan Bader uh, had a great saying things like uh the economy brings people together and politics mm-hmm. brings them apart. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. There's a kind of like a, a zero a sum. Uh, logic uh, ingrained in politics uh, because you want to express like the will of one collective uh, and you uh, described it very well like even in in Switzerland (laughs) democratic Switzerland he thought that uh, it was a negative tendency Mm -hmm. like people thought they had killed the king (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but actually he wasn't dead he became a zombie kind he calls it a specter or a ghost Mm -hmm. so it's still there because it's the idea uh, it's like we don't have a ruler anymore we rule ourselves idea uh, but uh, it's not we cooperate ourselves because cooperation is uh, uh, usually doesn't work uh, in a way that one has the plan about everything or everyone needs to know the exact plan it's figuring out uh, trusting each other and seeing where is really the win-win uh, possibility right. there uh, whereas this organization means it's called the principle of organization. It's mm-hmm. like I'm telling you. Uh, as if I knew everything, as if I could be an outside observer from the top. Mm-hmm. And at you You mentioned uh, the uh, pieces of the chessboard. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you should be there. And that's your job. And you right. got to do that. Uh, um, and it's, it's not working well for big tasks. And unfortunately, politics usually means going for big tasks, do it by a top-down organization, And everyone needs to go along uh, with this kind of tribalism, still as kind of homogeneous structure as well. And the replacement of religion as something tying a group together, uh, giving a common narrative. So it's all the wrong ingredients. Uh, So it's it's a big skepticism towards politics and and expecting change to come, positive change to come from everything but politics and politics following suit. Uh, Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, there's a uh, a song by the police something the opening lyrics or something like there is no political solution to our troubled evolution take no faith in constitution uh there will it's a bloodless revolution something like that but yeah i don't i agree it's i don't see obviously we need to have political orders because we are choosing the rules for ourselves and so the political apparatus is basically deciding what rules govern the society. But in an ideal world, we would just have fixed rules, right? Like life, liberty, property, everyone go out and play the game. Because when you create the rule-making body, you create this two-tier economic system where there's people that can apply and subvert or avoid the rules and then all the people that have to abide by the rules. So you get the rules for thee, not for me dynamic. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be like the main problem. So yeah. You want a level playing field
1: for everyone, mm-hmm. but you don't have it
0: in this two-tier system.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I differentiated between rules and uh, regulation, uh, I think. Uh, that's one way to look at it. And he thought like uh, rules should be simple, and and clear for everyone and, and in the sense that so you can generalize them mm-hmm. and regulation is a kind of interventional like like find a law that fits exactly that case and, mm. and brings you in an arbitrarily better position uh, than another one tries to fix something. Uh, it's kind of interventionism, legal interventionism. Right. Yeah, there's... And the- rules could also be like norms, cultural right. norms uh, uh, and uh, of course cooperation is helped by... Being in the sense positively predictable. Mm-hmm. You keep your promises as a kind of rule, as a simple rule, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a conducive rule to cooperation. Yeah.
0: And then there's the, the difference between discovered laws or legal discovery versus legislation by fiat. Yeah. Right. Something that, oh, we've observed these conflicts over eons of human interaction. Here's how we resolve them. Versus someone's in a position of power and they write a law that just like you now have to do this or go to jail, All yeah. right. So there's um, definitely a big difference there, and it seems like we get a lot more stability from those discovered rules that yeah. are uh, that are, uh, I guess, mapped onto the realities of human action versus this is just some individual right using this law as a means to their own personal end of yeah. whatever it may be. Um, okay. Going back to this piece, uh, this is Hayek's The Theory of Complex Phenomena. As we're talking offline, there's a difference here between an epistemological stance and a philosophical stance. And um, maybe it would be useful just to... Let's just start with definitions, I guess. First Mm. of all, what is epistemology? Mm. What is philosophy? And then how are these two concepts... What is Hayek doing Mm -hmm. in this paper to talk about these two concepts?
1: Yes. Originally philosophy was everything, like thinking Mm -hmm. (laughs) and wanting to know, that's the meaning of it. And then some disciplines uh, were separated out of it due to their success, and Mm -hmm. in particular natural sciences. They emancipated from the old philosophy, which seemed like, of course, natural sciences was part of natural philosophy uh but there was not that rate of getting ever better understanding of the world it seems like going circles uh, uh and uh, didn't have that kind of success success story that then the natural sciences had uh, uh, so philosophy's uh, philosophy tended to mean everything that's not useful and uh really helps uh, anyone it's metaphysics everything is not physical does not change the material world it's the big questions no one really can give a good answer and can have lots of competing narratives about so there was a skepticism in particular in in the modernity then late 19th century i think okay, how do you do philosophy how do you do proper philosophy uh, how can you know something and that's the part of philosophy that was self-reflective as epistemology is like the science of what is a science, is knowing how you can know, how do does it I- work actually? How do you find out something? How do you know it's true? Uh, and it's questions like these so it's Epistemology is all philosophical questions pertaining to how do you do philosophy and how do you mm. know something. Um, and uh, uh, there was a tendency to the success of the natural sciences. Just say, okay, well, we got rid. Uh, all that's left in philosophy is useless. Uh, let's get rid of it. Uh, we care about it. Metaphysics uh, mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. Uh, there's only one method, and there's some new scientific method, and it's a method of the natural sciences, mm-hmm. and let's just apply to everything. Uh, and let's try to understand human phenomena in the same way we go about understanding particle physics. Uh, and then of course you have technologies. You say, okay, where well, I've looked at millions of particles, I can mm-hmm. look at millions of people. Uh, and it's an interesting, complex behavior where I can have some variable and measures them, and then I try to measure human behavior in mm-hmm. a way. Looking from top as the scientist uh, is all neutral and, and uh, just looks at the facts. Um, of course, is biased in his own interest mm-hmm. in making sure he has a good job with enough income and prestige. Uh uh, and then, of course, he has uh, yeah, a biased way <laughs> to right. think about it. And how he called it scientism. Uh, right. So, that's one way to exaggerate the force of science as one monolithic method. Uh, and he rather goes for a dualism, but it's not uh, the usual dualism. Uh, dualism means you have two methods, maybe two mm-hmm. different fields, and the uh, Usual dualism was like there are maybe religious or metaphysical phenomena that need a very different methods and understanding than the material phenomena. Mm-hmm. one way they have a dualism. Uh, or the social sciences need a different method than the natural sciences. Mm-hmm. And he draws the line in a different way. Uh, and that's his knowledge uh, about the natural sciences in, in uh, Austria you could observe. Mm-hmm. Uh, also his... Uh, father and grandfather of natural science, he was very close to to natural scientists and physicists. uh, And he knew that they were up to realizing that, uh, of course, the era of Newtonian physics was over and Mm. there were complex phenomena. uh, was a very impressive thing because it uh, suddenly it seemed like for a class of phenomena, the usual physics doesn't apply uh, anymore. So very big, the very small, and the very interrelated phenomena Uh, And that can happen pretty soon. For example, a three-body problem is already a complex phenomenon. It's three celestial bodies because of the complex interrelation. And and if you look at it, you see it's a very different behavior. It's very different how you can predict uh, the orbits. Uh, It's chaos, Uh, chaotic, and chaos theory uh, element uh, there. And he realized, okay, the better dualism Mm. is between simple and complex phenomena. And the natural sciences are actually defined by treating mostly the simpler (laughs) phenomena, Mm -hmm. of which already some are so complex that you have to use different methods. Uh, And the social sciences, of course, are entirely in the realm of the complex uh, phenomena. So they need a new uh, method, not because they are not natural sciences, it's because... Uh, They have the same basis in in the order of the world, but it's the more complex things uh, uh, that we look at. And uh, most physicists like this would agree that physics uh, concerns itself with the simplest phenomena Mm -hmm. and goes really deep uh, uh, in these fields. And I I think it's a good answer to the monism-dualism question there. Mm -hmm. And it was an epistemological one, Mm -hmm. and of course it's related to a philosophical stance, which is... uh, what does the world look like uh, mm-hmm. is it really is this distinction is this something within the world or is it in our models there's a ways of looking at it yeah. uh, and uh how it comes to realization yeah that's uh, it's in the real world but of course it's not a clear-cut line yeah, right but like here is simple and complex and the world is not black and white uh, uh, when you see it you'll understand <laughs> that it's complex. Uh, uh, and part of it is that you cannot predict uh, the exact configuration, but you can recognize a pattern. Mm. And that's his approach. He thinks for complex phenomena, we can uh, understand patterns. We can even predict patterns. Uh, and that approach has been useful even in the natural sciences. We now mm. know that in the natural sciences, are a lot of uh, universal patterns that. uh, They don't only apply to uh, phenomena in the natural sciences, also in the social sciences, uh, like Mm -hmm. power laws. You have power laws in in earthquakes, power laws in avalanches, and you have power laws in the settlement of cities, the size of cities, the number of patterns, all kind of scale uh, uh, variant laws um, where you have a similar pattern. Yeah, of course it doesn't. It's, it's not the approach of the I'm a physicist. I'm gonna predict you what the city will look like mm-hmm. your way because I can put a billion people into my model and then <laughs> you know, come out with the result and tell you what to do and and uh, impose laws on you because I've just deduced it from my model. Uh, it's it's a different approach. It's oh I recognize something uh, and it's part of a joint reality. So it's not a dualism of two worlds that mm-hmm. can communicate with each other. It's one world, one order. A very intricate, interesting order, uh, and we have to choose the methods on um, what makes sense. Mm. Uh, it's almost like the line of humility, right? <laughs> so yes, exactly. And below this
0: line, and- we can predict that water will freeze at zero degrees centigrade or some other simplistic natural phenomenon. But beyond this line, we can't know, right? Yes. We can't know how any human will respond to any given set of circumstances, okay. for instance. And, um, mm-hmm. There it is, right? Simplicity and complexity. But it's still um, somewhat arbitrary, but it's arbitrary to the extent of what, I
1: guess, our current tools, technologies, techniques allow us to predict. Yes, and and what you look at as well. So there's a subjective component as well. Uh, Hayek thinks that by evolution, we uh have mastered the understanding of some patterns that yeah. have been very important to our survival so mm-hmm. we are really great at discerning some very complex patterns recognize them immediately mm-hmm. like for faces for example right uh, we have amazing capacity to distinguish yeah. tiny differences in faces right. complex structure and really getting in the unconscious indications of health and mm-hmm. uh, lots of things uh, that have been important for our evolution uh, uh, but uh, for other things we are not that apt and we need methods we need tools yeah. to figure out that complexity uh, and he thought that it may be misleading because those things seem so simple we think then everything is simple yeah a complex phenomena we think human beings are simple uh, yeah but the first they are not at all, and right. uh, I mean that's the
0: challenge here yeah yeah the, um, philosophy i think philia sophia right the love of wisdom mm-hmm. where it comes from originally yeah now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor icoin technology icoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet it looks like a mini iphone with a little touch screen and camera on it uh, the device has no wi-fi no cellular connection no gps it's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet uh, like i said it's got a high-res three-inch touchscreen it's got a camera for air gapping the wallet, uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility, and it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCointechnology.com today and use promo code Bitcoin23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Is this the natural sciences where we said, oh, there's only one monolithic scientific method. We'll discard the rest. We don't need philosophy, any of this. Was that the pendulum swinging too far post-enlightenment that we thought? Because we did tap into something very useful, right? The scientific method, empiricism, et cetera, gave us all of the not all but it advanced society very rapidly from a technological standpoint yeah. did we then just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, like yeah. oh this is the answer to everything we don't need all this other stuff
1: yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> and that emerged in uh, uh vienna as well that's uh logical positivism or, yeah, yeah. or empiricism. uh and uh yeah that's the idea that um you can scrap everything that can't be described scientifically and scientifically is only one method. Yeah. And nothing can be of value that can't be described as data points leading to generalized laws. Right. And uh, uh, interestingly, Wittgenstein uh, was, was considered to be part uh, of the group, but he had the opposite approach. He understood, of course, the challenge. Uh, that metaphysics can't be dealt with with the methods uh, needed in logics nor in the natural sciences, mm-hmm. but uh, he came to the opposite conclusion. He thought that okay, the relevant things cannot be described by the right. methods of science. Yes, uh, so he was even um, in, in a way, it was very insulting to the multiple positivists or the empiricists. Uh, they invited Wittgenstein to the meetings because they thought he's one of us. Because he was yeah. very critical about metaphysics. Uh, because he thought it's a wrong idea to mix uh, uh, things that have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so he thought uh, he's one of them. And when they invited him to their meetings, he would just, instead of discussing philosophy he'd start reciting Indian poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it, it was a mean meant in a mean way. Yeah. Uh, he really thought that those like, inner truths and relevant metaphysical things yes. uh, can only be expressed by art, aesthetics, oh, and out of experience right. uh, yeah. thing approach. Uh, and so he thought his tractatus was like the end of philosophy. He solved it. He mm-hmm. knew that... Uh, uh, about the things that philosophy usually uh, deals with and the questions asked, it can really solve. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and if you can't talk about it, then you should better shut up, uh, what he's <laughs> like saying. <laughs> <laughs> and uh-huh. then do poetry or do something good with your life. And what he did after he finished the Tractatus. Uh, he stopped philosophy and became an elementary school teacher.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: like teaching kids, yeah. getting the yeah. mathematics, uh, yeah. living a good life. Uh, his main advice was travel light. Don't yeah. carry a lot of baggage. Oh, uh, okay. uh, so it was kind of the opposite of like the big scientific guru has figured it all out and tells you what to do. It's like, right. I figured it out. I can't tell <laughs> you <Yeah, yeah, laughs> what right. to do. You got to live uh, a good life.
0: Yeah, that's, Again, there's humility oh, there, right? Yeah. It's, yes, uh, yes. You can't, there is no final answer. There's yeah. no final plan. And there's no utopian vision. Yeah. It's more like a discovery process, right? Learning about yourself, learning about the world, and then how you can fit into the world in a good way, right? A way that hopefully you derive meaning. And then ideally, I think for most people, we derive meaning adding value to others, right? Mm. Whether that's being parents or teachers or... Yeah colleagues, whatever it may be. Um, Another thing that's strange about that is to think that science is the be all end all answer. It's almost a paradox perhaps because there's no actual scientific justification for the superiority of science, right? We're just saying like, yeah, this thing is useful, right? It's been useful for us, but that's not, you can't run the scientific method on science itself and say this is the thing we should choose. So, if you say science is the only answer, you're kind of like knocking the slats out
1: from under science itself in a way. Yes, I think one has to distinguish. I mean, science, uh, I think the English language also mainly means the natural sciences and the certain metal yeah. attached to it. Uh, and uh, part of the natural sciences in particular, this part that lenses itself to engineering has been very successful. Yes. So, it's really, uh, we have managed uh, mankind to kind of figure out regularities in the order of the world and use the tower advantage yes. uh, and that I think can't be disputed. Uh, right. Uh, it still, I mean, doesn't tell you morally if if that's good or not, but sure. Mises still would be kind of progressive optimist and say, yeah, people, if it's a better way to their ends, people will choose it. There's no way in like calling that immoral. Right. Uh, uh, that people want to live a better life, and then this technology as the means, uh, yeah. basically, and getting better means. And even if that has an impact uh, on the structure, and uh, someone will like it, or if things is dangerous, uh, uh, he'd rather expect that human beings will try it out, and in yeah. this way, you can you can bring it back back into the box of yeah, <laughs> it in the long- yeah, 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 it's uh, it, it's open, so it's better to live with it, understand it. Uh, Uh, and cope uh, with the dynamic uh, that's happening Uh, but uh, the thing is when you um, apply engineering in fields where it doesn't work then it gets dangerous and that's the social engineering that's like you want to make uh, there's a good analogy by herbert spencer was partly another predecessor of the austrian school he said uh, uh, the wrong approach is like uh, uh, a child that thinks it can make a clock better work by. Using a hammer and a chisel. Mm-hmm. It's like it's a complex mechanism. You have no clue about it, right. but you think you got to fix it. Yes. Uh, and that's the problem, of course. Uh, having And usually it's a humiliating experience, really wanting to mm-hmm. understand complex phenomena. And usually it leads uh, to a different approach. Uh, and interestingly, in medicine, we had a Viennese school of medicine as well. And this, it led to a quite. Um, uh, empathic approach the patient Uh understanding even though they were very interested in the latest scientific results Uh they figured out now the main job of the doctors actually holding your hand (laughs) and giving you faith that your body will heal uh, itself and and, uh, going back to the patient was, was like the end point of the Vienna School of Medicine like yeah. Going back to the human being that is there, right, right. it's like a holistic uh, thing. It's not just something to be fixed. Yeah, So that would be crazy. Like you can't create it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You cannot just take out of your toolbox. Of course, I mean, you can fix some bones and sure. so on, but you can't fix a complex organism. Right. I like that. And usually, it's a misleading approach.
0: Yeah, it's difficult enough even to diagnose, right? Yeah. What's going on? Much less fix it. Yeah, in a, in a complex system, and there this necessary humility in the face of nature, right? That we don't understand all the connections and relations between the elements. So, and we've, we've seen this countless times, right? Like we, what did we do? I think it was the forties, fifties, and sixties. We sprayed DDT mm-hmm. as this pesticide in all in North America. We're thinking it's, we're doing good, right? We're mm-hmm. killing the insects and increasing crop yields. And now, decades later we're still dealing with the consequences of that right like the poison has seeped into the water supply the food supply so
1: no, with dvt i'd say is we're dealing with the consequences of the consequences because there was a scare story actually about dvt that it would lead to the thinning thinning of the eggshells of birds Mm -hmm. uh, and would lead to the disappearance of birds uh, Mm. which was not true Mm -hmm. so it wasn't as bad as it was meant out to be. So it led to, in parts, of course, you had over usage, but in parts, you had under usage of DDT and malaria came back uh, uh, with a lot of toll mm. on as well. So it's always quite it's complex. Kind of and, then, yeah. and we tend to like throw out baby with the uh, bathwater. Yeah. <laughs> as I right. said, it's like reaction, counter reaction. Uh, so it was, it was a popular silent spring, which I think, in, in from More stand, it was right upon your finger like look at long-term effects uh, look at what that might mean for an ecosystem was a very good way to approach it uh, because uh, but as as it seemed to be such a virtuous way to approach it uh, then uh, we are quite selective in in the scientific rigor we apply to things and uh, also I mean fear is a very strong uh, driver emotion Uh, so I think you can err in both ways Uh, being too fearful of new technologies right. and then being accelerationist, I think you gotta force it on everyone. Right, uh, just accept fear is natural. Yes, very natural, and and it's a warning sign, and sometimes it's useful. If it's politicized, if it becomes a hype, if it's abused by people, then fear itself, of course, can be quite dangerous and detrimental to development. And-
0: yeah, and this is this is perennial to the human condition, right? That we need we're constantly trying to figure out that fine line of like, where do we intervene to shape the course of events in our favor? And where do we have the humility not to intervene? Mm. Right. Maybe we don't understand DDT fully. Let's not spray it on everything. Mm. But even with the yes. good intentions, right, we're trying yeah. to prevent malaria yes. or whatever yes. it may be. Yeah. So, I mean, that seems like something we'll just always be dealing with. So it's all, all, it's always going to be trial and error yeah. in a way. Yep. And that's, that's actually increasingly concerning. As technology progresses, because the errors become potentially much larger, right? That if we misapply a technological solution, that we could we could destroy ourselves in theory, you know.
1: So Especially yeah, get into it. biological weaponry and things like, like this. And only if it's a we that's employing technology, that's politics usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but- What is overlooked usually is the engineering, Uh, a large part of engineering uh, is based on trial and error. Mm It's not like I know everything, I figure it out and I learn humility by figuring out it's like small Mm -hmm. individuals trying out something. Usually the inventor is risking most, Uh, he really takes all the risk and you learn from it. He may die because he... It was a wrong risk uh, to take, the first people sorry, flying, building uh, planes, uh, experimenting with nuclear physics and so on. Of course, that was a toll, but I think that's that's great that people were able to bear the responsibility for their acts. It becomes dangerous when it's a political decision. It's like, do we have to employ this technology now? Is it like the panacea for everyone? Mm -hmm. There are people who don't want it. Uh, who's saying no, and then you get a mandate of going to force them uh, uh, to do good. Uh, And that, of course, where where it ended. And then with DDT, it was, of course, also pictures of people being involuntarily doused (laughs) by a kind of top-down shower instead of using it in a meaningful, (laughs) sensible way. Uh, Because usually if if you offer technology to people, they'd be reluctant first, but if they see it's a good means to their end, I don't have to do that much education. Uh, if just really, if it works or not, and who's bearing the responsibility if it's not working? So the best way is to have an entrepreneur offering it. Mm-hmm. Um, and people figure out if it's good or not. So if you say people are just stupid to figure that out, usually uh, that's that's a bad sign. Mm-hmm. People deciding for them. And that have been some of the worst abuses of technology, of course. Right. So it's not technology in itself, I'd say, that increases the risks. Is collective action uh, 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 in a larger planetary scale? It's right. Thinking all oh, the experts all around the world they really figured it out. No, now we got it. That was everyone yeah, with yeah, the magical stuff we invented. Right. Yeah, we're gonna fix climate change
0: by like, seeding the clouds with whatever chemicals, and yeah. Uh, Scary indeed. So we mentioned this earlier that technology is obviously what's driving societal change primarily. And then the narrative and mythology sort of fits onto the new technological paradigm as it progresses. What, what, what role did technological change play in moving away from Newtonian physics? Cause obviously you had Einstein basically that created this theory initially, right? That, Oh, it's not Newtonian. It's relativity. But then we had to actually observationally corroborate Einstein's theories. So was that, is part of this a progression driven by, I'm not sure, telescopes? What other technologies might have been involved that got us out of the old Newtonian theory into the Einsteinian
1: theory? What was the the role of technology there? Yes, I think increased precision in measurement with mm-hmm. it, and a lot of it was good engineering and trial and error uh, system. like could some experiment for, for relativity theory uh, and so on, was being able to look at, the, at scales that are not the human scales, mm-hmm. very small scales mm-hmm. and very large scales, but are usually outside of our uh, senses and observation, we're right. having the instruments to do so, and then Figuring it's still, out, it's part of the same world. If uh, yeah. we find a very different behavior, then it's odd. Uh, we have to cope with that. Uh, right. And uh, originally, it was a lot of reluctance uh, to go for that and just say, "Okay, you must have made an error. <laughs> can't be like that." Yeah. Even uh, Einstein was not happy. He said, the, "Like God certainly is not rolling the dice. It's right. random." Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you called it quantum entanglement, what spooky action at a yeah. distance, right? It just didn't make sense. And mm, yes, uh, yes. of course, I mean, there you have like conceptual models then that uh, can turn out to be useful as well. Uh, and um, I, I, I think, uh, I mean, there's a reason to assume that our mind has evolved within the world. So it's not totally colorish. Sure. We should be able to figure out the regularities uh, and even our conceptual models can be useful. Uh, yeah. For that, and it has turned out to be that these very theoretical advances, then coming from engineering trial and errors and, and having better measurements, those very theoretical ideas about how it could fit together and how it could what the regularities could be, uh, uh, have led to to immense results. Then in engineering as well, of course, a lot of new technologies are based on insights of yeah. physics. Uh, uh, so that was very odd to uh, most people. Most physicists would not have expected right. that uh, uh, to happen. And uh, maybe that, of course, over time, it increased again understanding of physics again, and the physics envy. It's so, like, wow, magicians are really powerful. Yeah, uh, there, but uh, it's really understanding is not physics. You can't separate the discipline. Was, right, uh, complexity and scales uh, and and. Uh, yeah, odd odd behavior of constituents uh, and the equivalence uh, uh, within how how the world is constructed. Yeah, I've still not figured out if it all boils down to one base regularity or is really kind of duality in the world. Are still not uh, obvious, uh, um, but uh, um, I I'd be optimistic that we'll approach an ever deeper understanding and it will eventually make sense. Uh, it seems like this too,
0: back to that kind of material dialectic we have with reality, like as we change how we relate to the world, it changes the way society is structured. There seems to be a big lag though, because it was been talked about. We still seem to operate somewhat on this 20th century Newtonian paradigm of you know people being pieces on the chessboard, yes. which is Newtonian. Yes which is, you know, we left that behind yeah. in, what, the mm-hmm. middle of the last century, but here we are, early 21st century, still yes. operating social systems on that. How long does it take us to move into, for relativity, to start to permeate our social thinking?
1: Well, it takes a while. I think we're, like, in in the social sciences, in between the Newtonian physics and the modern physics, okay. and it's at the stage of the early simple thermodynamics, which is mystics, mm right so it seems to be the, the most useful approach to see phenomenal statistics big data uh, mm-hmm. gathering data and uh, uh, that has a lot of problems and of course time dynamics uh, has developed and we know that the simplest systems can be described this way uh, but not the more interesting, complex ones. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we have turbulences uh, and all the interesting stuff Of large. Uh, <clears throat> the higher level of, of complexity. So I, I think the stage of the social sciences. is the most dominant methodology in economics is econometrics, yes. and mm-hmm. I think it's statistics is thermal dynamics for human beings, yeah. which is, uh, I'm not saying it's all wrong. I mean, thermodynamics is very useful, and mm-hmm. sometimes there are simple situations. There are actually situations when human beings behave like particles. Mm-hmm. They can be modeled, and it works perfectly. Mm-hmm. And you know what it is, is when you're forced as a human being to stand in line for the security theater at the, the airport. Mm-hmm. Then you can model perfectly. You can improve on the design of it because you are forced to act like a particles. You right. stand in line. You go right. when you can go, and whether someone is in the way, you can. Right. But you, you you even would stand for an hour in line. You just say, "Can I have to?" <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's exactly how particles would behave. Oh,
0: that's interesting. So yeah, when you force people into kind of a narrow aperture, they do start behaving like yeah. particles. You yeah. know, right? you're constraining their their degrees of freedom, basically. Yes. So action is less. There's less yeah. unpredictability. Yeah, yeah. and
1: then the models work. They work right, perfectly, right. sweetly. <laughs> right, but usually they don't. Yeah, as we change our behavior, we adapt, we learn, uh, we figure out if like everyone is waiting here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Probably, there <Yes>. uh, <laughs> should be
0: another way, a right. shorter way, if like <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So we talked about the difference between human action and human behavior. We talked about um, Hayek's work and his distinction between simplicity and complexity, kind of being that that line of humility, you know what can we know deterministically about versus what can we not know deterministically about? Um, let's talk about now the difference between theory and observation. And now I think a lot of people tend when they use the word theory, they say it's something like, "Oh, that's just a theory, right?" Mm-hmm. Conspiracy theory is the one that comes up a lot. So it's something that's just speculative, like you think might happen. You don't have any proof for it. These kind of kinds of things, but the theory has a much deeper root. It's actually something more uh, reflective of like how we look at the world or what we choose to look at. It's the frame we're putting on, mm-hmm. our, a particular observation, perhaps. Um, and I'd, I'll let you kind of get into the the etymology, of the word itself too. But so, what? How do we distinguish between theory and observation, and why is our traditional sense of the word theory largely incorrect?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, theory, theoria, is reflection or looking at the world, <laughs> if you like. Um, but uh, it's 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 a mental process. It uses reason, and that's the distinction to measurement, uh, maybe. Um, the, I think the bad uh, name to theory comes a bit uh, as a heritage uh, from the Greeks and in particular the Neoplatonic uh, traditions, which are to idealists. So they think that the essence of the things is an ideal. It's not what you can mm-hmm. measure. Uh, uh, and uh, that's the real reality. That's the thing that counts. The real things are the things that you can measure, uh, that you can... Uh, uh, conceptualize and you can long to attain as a kind of perfect, ideal type of something, mm-hmm. and that seeking that. Uh, and I think there's reason to be skeptical about that. Uh, I think you can't like just uh, get rid of that tradition as a very important part of thinking mm-hmm. and was very important also to bring uh, later up to the scientific mindset in a more general sense and being curious about the world and mm-hmm. thinking and being able to work with abstractions as well. Of course it's useful to use idealist uh, idealized geometrical types knowing mm-hmm. what a circle is uh, uh, even though you'll never measure perfect circle uh, mm-hmm. but it's, it's useful to be able to use such conceptual tools uh, and as i said uh, before I, I think there's reason to believe that evolution has given us the capacity to use those concepts and and they are not totally opposed to reality in a sense they're a useful part of reality they're based on regularities uh uh in in reality but you can go astray with theory in that sense and it turns into fantasy and no. kind of uh i can really uh prove or disprove what the ideal type is so i make it up uh And uh, the worst kind of make up things is I make things up that are useful to me, that are in my interest, that give me prestige, uh, legitimacy, power, even. Uh, So I think there's a rightful distrust in the very theoretical if there's no way to check it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And one way to check it is to check results. Of course, you can also try to check the character of a person, which you only see if you see him for a very long time and see him act in particular situations. It's very hard. We are very good at deceiving other people. Uh Uh, In particular, the worst of us are very good at that. So so one way is to look at results. But results, of course, are only correlations and not causalities. It can be by chance. It can be you did the right thing but it didn't work out. Right. You did a very mean and bad thing and it was very successful. Right. So right. very hard to tell. Um, and then there are ways to cope with the lack of responsibility. Uh, so and I think that's one good thing about what's then called the positivist uh, uh, tradition and uh, what's assumed to be the real only scientific tradition is a kind of discipline. saying so it can be your interests uh, you must be unbiased as a scientist and there's a way to prove it. So someone can check it. Someone can take your models, concepts, but in particular your measurements uh, and then try to replicate it, try to figure out if you've done something wrong or not. Right. And uh, uh, But of course, it's a wrong idea and and uh, was too much expected of it that you can always figure out wrong measurements. Uh, because, uh, and we've seen with the replication crisis (laughs) in the sciences, uh, it's really hard to figure out if a measurement uh, was done or not. And the more important question is, what are you measuring and why are you measuring it? uh, And how did you get access (laughs) to the kind of measurements uh, uh, to the data? What's the bias? Uh, What's the reason you are selecting that to be published and not uh, all the fail observations that you probably had. So a lot of questions to ask and asking questions, that's theory. It's like coping with concepts and understanding what's a measurement that you can measure or can you measure what's a measurement, right? Right, right, How do you measure the correct way to measure? right, it all depends. What do I want to achieve? What are my tools? Why am I doing it? Why is it a good thing to do it, Uh, and in many ways, it's it's a very stupid idea to measure something. Uh, it can be a very childish idea uh, to just try to fake a given an answer by measuring something. Like, are you a good person, let me t- say. <laughs> right, right. Take sizes uh, or something or see if you got the right uh, ingredients in your body and things like that. So there's a lot of good uh, theory to be made before you can make uh, useful measurements, uh, Uh, measurement is nothing against measurements just you need theory to know when you measure how you measure, what it means to measure uh, and what's the challenge in measuring what's the bias you can get uh, and uh, so on so I think it was an early stage uh, in scientific development between like the speculative uh, exaggerated tradition which was a lot of it was also grasping or holding tightly onto something of the past. Uh, In Austria we had the counter-reformation mm-hmm. uh, which was an effort under very understandable effort to get rid of the protestants not because they just hated the protestants because they realized it's a very dangerous uh, ferment uh, of thinking with a lot of heresies in mm-hmm. it, uh, and it led to some disastrous results because you get all these sects then competing against each other within protestantism and, and some uh, crazy utopian experiments happening in this ferment and like Doubting, thinking that everyone for himself can uh, understand from the scriptures what God words uh, are meant to be and Mm -hmm. things like that. So I I think there was a reason to see that there are effects to be scared about, but the result was a political one. It was the counter-reformation getting just rid of Protestants by seeking out Mm -hmm. Protestants and getting more power to the Catholic Church while it was losing legitimacy. And that's always bad to prop up something. It right. turns into larping, or or is hypocritical. Yeah. And then people counteract this, like they start hating the church. Right, like raises so they start hating grandmothers, right. uh, um, start hating it. Uh, they think it's politically propped up, uh, and that's part of it why it became a bit more ver- uh, virulent than than uh, or. Uh, crazier in, in Vienna uh, at the time this clash right. of like the past and modernity when you can't stop it then it's all there uh, at once uh, um, yeah and and uh, there was part of the reaction so we were somewhere in between mm. at that stage and it was right to be scheduled about the speculative part of idealistic philosophy mm. and it's also part of the heritage of the Austrian School of Economics to be Different to the German traditions, uh, which tend to be more idealist and be more realist It's like, we don't want to think about abstract concepts. We can use them as a tool. We want to understand real people, right. uh, the real results. We are not judgmental in the sense that we know we start with the idea was the ideal person, right. and then we apply it to the real one. Right. We want to have empathy for normal, regular human beings and, and find something interesting and beautiful in them with all their faults. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's a good approach, but it was definitely positive. It's- I think it's a halfway stop in between Then they think it's only measurements are all powerful everything that's not measurements is not scientific uh, you can only induce laws from the data the facts mm-hmm. they speak for themselves so like those who are in charge of the facts they are the scientists and it's the only proper way to know something mm. and it's still uh, a core idea in a lot of scientific practices and I've seen I think we've seen a lot of abuse with that. so I think part of the pandemic situation also was over uh, or exaggeration based on a faulty epistemological uh, starting point. Um, uh, because when you start measuring, you only look again at human beings as particles, as problems, uh, and you don't see, and you think you can model now. Uh, right. Uh, behavior uh, uh, how it emerges you can model catastrophes that are looming that only you can prevent uh, and uh, i think uh, there's a reason that you need good theory and uh, if you're only measuring and you take no interest in theory usually it's a bad sign mm. uh, because uh, uh, that can come from uh, a will to control. Mm. It's like, I don't care about what you say. Let me measure you. It's like, I am deciding what I take from you. Right. It's just the outside. Again, the behavior part. Yeah. I take no interest in what are your motives, your background, yeah. uh, biography, your intentions. Uh, and uh, as long as I can't measure them, and then it's your fault because I can't measure them. Right, right, right. So there's this good analogy is like... the a trunk that's uh, searching for his keys oh, out of the light post. Yeah. That's because that's only the light. <laughs> yeah, it's not because he lost it there. Uh, that seems to weigh with his exaggerated positivism.
0: Yeah. So there's this. Um, I mean, a, 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 there's a good intention here, perhaps. Yeah. Um, uh, is the term white free? Is it white Value free? Yeah. Uh, Wertfrei. oder wert, saying? I'm saying it terribly, of course. But uh, this idea of stripping away all the subjectivity right so you're just left with these reproducible empirical scientific results that can be replicated and so there's no you're you're getting a human bias out of the equation Mm -hmm. right and you're left with just this hard objective scientific fact Mm -hmm. but that so that's a good intention i guess like you want to strip that away so that it's something reliable and rock solid that we can act upon But then there's always, there always remains the subjectivity of, well, what facts are you selecting? All right. Which ones are you presenting? What narrative are they supporting? Like, there's this, although you're trying to get the subjectivity and bias out of it, the selection of the actual facts and the order they're presented, et cetera, you can never actually get rid of that, right? Like, there's an infinite constellation of facts around us all the time so it's like how do you choose them why are you choosing them what are your intentions who are you what are your motivations like this is the subjectivity that is uh ineradicable let's say yes and um maybe we we deluded ourselves i don't know into thinking that we can get to hard objective truth and then then you know you get sayings like trust science as we saw over the past three years which is kind of oxymoronic in a way too because you're saying don't question the science and the science is a systematic way of questioning suzanne don't question the questioning it's like what that doesn't make any sense um so that's uh that was an ideal i guess that we were working towards but you can't actually attain in the real world for all these reasons we've laid out Mm -hmm. but then the ideals themselves you mentioned the circle for instance right like well, there's such thing as a perfect circle. Like you don't, we don't observe them in nature very often, mm-hmm. if at all. But mathematically, you can have a perfect circle, right? Where it's uh, equidistant from the center on all sides. And you were saying that, like, okay, these ideals matter to the extent that we can check or verify them. Mm-hmm. How do you? Aren't we like with well, the perfection of a circle, for instance? Aren't you sort of verifying it within? it's like a self-contained verification in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're saying within the system of mathematics, I can prove that this is a perfect circle. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't that dis, like it's not attached to
1: the real world though, right? It's only within that. Yeah. That's a very important question of philosophy actually leads to to a dualism. uh, But uh, Mises uh, gave an answer in Hayek partly. uh, I mean, one, uh, yes if you start with axioms and you deduce you're within a system yeah uh, and you don't know uh, usually axioms most people think axioms are arbitrary uh mm. mises thought no with human action we can start with an axiom that's made up it's uh, irrefutable right it's, uh, is this irrefutable because it's the essence of uh, uh <laughs> how human beings had us and uh uh, so you can see that it's a very strong insider intuition from inside. As I, I know <laughs> yes. something about human beings because I want. This uh, yes, is different from outside observation, yeah. and then I can communicate with other people and verify. I have some similarity here uh, at least in this very basic logical structure. It was very important if it should be uh, describing reality to to be. Uh, uh, very strict uh, and limited in your axioms. And Mises thought it's really just uh, one important axioms and then you have like a few uh, assumptions maybe that of course uh, that seem almost self-evident but th- right. theoretically could be refuted. Uh, um, uh, so it's it's a very... Uh, um, yeah, a very selective approach to that. Now, right. what what could be the link between axioms? I mean, there's the philosophical debate about uh, if mathematics describes just a made-up model of the world, and there are, of course, alternative mathematics. Uh, right. I tend to assume that the regularities, uh, how we represent them, that, of course, is like language. Mathematics is like a language as well. But it's a very structured language where you can have deductive insights that surprise mm-hmm. you. Uh, by following it through Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think this kind of inner regularity reflects a regularity of the cosm so i think there's a link i think it makes sense that there's a link Uh, uh, i think it makes sense that our mind is capable uh, to see that regularity and even entertain abstract Mm -hmm. uh, regularities like that And and the reason why we can see those regularities why they make sense and why they are in a beautiful way surprising uh, Mm -hmm. and revealing to us and sometimes even very useful Mm -hmm. uh, is that's how the world uh, is set up to be. Uh, And I expect that uh, the um, regularity that we assume now in the natural sciences will not disappear completely with a new insight that we Mm -hmm. end up, oh my God, that's all random or or much worse than we thought, uh, much less regular, I think we'll see more regularities and how it fits together uh, and how it's uh, based on some very modular logical elements uh, itself that may be reflected in elements of the world uh, uh, as well. But those are assumptions, of course, so Ludwig oh, for Mises is very pragmatic again. He's anti-metaphysic in the sense as well, as most Austrians I say, okay, there's mm-hmm. uh, no use in discussing metaphysics if we don't have a shared faith or uh, mm-hmm. mythology or whatever. Will just it makes no sense. Okay? Mm-hmm. We can't really decide those questions. We can discuss endlessly if there's a God or not. and won't really right. bring us any further in our understanding of human beings. Uh, uh, so, um, he thought, let's just assume for the moment uh, what we know and what we don't know so is the best approach to go about that. Uh, um, and uh, he thought it's a useful approach, approach as well, but it's useful because it's based in, in reality. And he says he knows he's not claiming that he knows for sure that the world is like that. Right. He even things. It may be possible in the future that uh, determinism may be upheld in the sense mm. really everything is predetermined because it's a metaphysical question for him. He can't decide it. I mean, he can't see the inner workings uh, of the cosmos. So he's not strict in this philosophical stance. He should be open-minded in a sense. But uh, he's reacting of course against the positivists as well. And I think it's a very important counterweight. And that's why he puts so much Focus on uh, praxeology as a deductive science. If he would have lived like right. a few decades earlier, probably he would put all the focus on the inductive side of it. Uh, I mean. Because if you only have speculation, then of course, a Mises or the approach of the Austrian schools uh, say, Oh, go back to reality. Please and look really? at real people. And if you measure it, they me- measure them, but at least you're seeing something real and you're touching the soil. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think a lot of it is of course within the context you react to something. Um and uh that's why in a theory and history is like it's it's two sides. So history is for him the empirical reality, so he calls it history, not science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, theory and science or theory and measurement mm-hmm. is the problem with measurements, it's it's past. Uh, mm-hmm. Usually it's dead. I mean, yeah. if I want to measure here inside, I got to cut you off. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, so uh, that's from the past. It's dead. It's not the interesting dynamics. Right. Usually, in particular in economics, So as he calls catalactics, about the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's going to happen. What do you anticipate? Uh, no one knows in advance who uh, will be right. Uh, and uh, so why? Did yeah, the for this the exact
0: conditions either right yeah it's like you can't re you can rerun the experiment of freezing water
1: but you can't rerun the besides economic yeah. conditions so yeah and a lot of people wrongly assume that praxology means you deduce everything in the world from one axiom right it is arbitrary yeah of course it wouldn't make any sense. or it would be foolish uh yeah. Uh, no you use a deductive logic to like uh, structure your mind uh, to help you understand real empirical phenomena uh, yeah phenomena that you can observe yeah, you with. can uh, see or uh, uh, but be aware that's not because you can see something it's important uh, Yes. what we call seeing is a very small part of a spectrum yes. that was useful to us for our survival uh, yeah there's a lot of cultural elements to it, uh, of course. I mean, we've been able to discern more colors uh, with cultural progress and right. discernment and differentiation. Mm.
0: Yeah, listen, the unseen typically tends to be the grander, more influential structure, yes. right? Like yes. the laws of physics tell us a lot more about how things, yes. about how phenomena manifest than any particular phenomena, yeah. a phenomenon. Um, I think it was too that I heard this. This might be apocryphal, but someone asked Mises, "How do we know humans act?" And he said, "Through observation." Um, so maybe there's like a mutual informing between theory and observation. You know that even the the, the axiom of action yeah. itself. Um, I guess you could say also through self reflection. It's not yeah. just through observation. Yeah. It's also through being a human, as you said. Um, but there's this element of well if we didn't ever conduct the action of self-reflection or observation we would never have the axiom of action yes. to build this structure mm-hmm. on and the other point the thing the way i really like to put this for people is we could say it's axiomatic in the sense that it's this unshakable assumption and the i think it was hoppe that his book i think it was hoppe economic science and the austrian method where he described If you try to argue that the axiom of action is not true, right? That humans do not purposefully use means to pursue ends. Then in that act, in that act, you're using the means of argumentation with the end of trying to refute the axiom of action. Mm -hmm. So therefore it's irrefutable, right? Like to try and argue against it is an action. So you're proving Mm -hmm. the axiom and trying to disprove it. That's what makes it such a strong foundation.
1: Uh, yes. I mean, many people still assume it's a rhetorical trick. Uh, mm. well, I think it's a strong argument. I mean, when Mises uh, uh, Mises, measuring both like this performative uh, contradiction that would arise, but also he measures observation in the sense I have to see other people and realize they're human beings myself. And uh, their behavior could be explained by action Uh uh so that's that's part of it as well so it comes from reality uh, i'd say uh, but there's uh, different ways and it just calls itself evident in a sense it's mm-hmm. even it's unthinkable <laughs> then mm-hmm. it wouldn't be like that and uh, uh, you'd only argue about it if you don't like the conclusions it's like why why would you argue about that human beings act uh, yeah. I mean, you can argue a bit about like how relevant is uh, choice, but that's not what it's right. about. Uh, it's not a claim that we are always rational pursuers mm-hmm. uh, of, of obvious ends. Uh, mm-hmm. no, that's not what, what he means. Uh, it's uh, that we are not entirely determined, at least even they are claiming metaphysically, but uh, it's not useful to assume that we are determined by outside our environment. Uh, the best way to explain, why uh, a human being shows a behavior moves from left to right is not to assume that some cause attracted him mm-hmm. to the right and he had no other way that can happen mm-hmm. of course but the best approach is to assume he had a reason uh, to go mm-hmm. there because there was something uh, that you yeah. may and there are very different reasons that can lead to the same uh, kind of behavior and yeah that's a useful uh, approach i'd say and uh, uh, it's not a permanent, not a very strong metaphysical statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it depends on on human freedom. It's like um, you could say, if you don't want to be metaphysics, say it's better to treat human beings as if they are free, right? Because it's from what we know, what we don't know is the best way to cope with it. Yes. It's the best way uh, to cope with the unpredictability of human beings, but still not make it seem random, uh, random then it'll be fatalistic. It's like I have no clue why people are doing it that way, and I think it's a good compromise uh, uh, to assume, and uh, I assume that it's true uh, in the real sense that human beings are free, which doesn't mean that we are always uh, independent of our environment, mm. not at all, no. We are free, which means we bear responsibility. Uh, We can stop uh, acts. Uh, We can act against even our life interests. We're able to commit suicide. Uh, We are able to bear pain. Uh, We can go against our instincts. um, we can do terrible things to winch mm-hmm. animals aren't even capable to do so. So there's this added element of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And epistemologically, it's best to assume that uh, you can't predict the behavior of a human being just by looking at the environment. Right. Usually you go wrong. It's like this. Right. The bad kind of prejudice that comes not from really knowing a kind of people and yeah. seeing as a kind, but... Uh, uh, from just the context, the outside observation, yeah, and um, it usually it's not useful. It's not true. <laughs> right? Uh, it doesn't help. So a, again, it coming, doesn't really matter if it's it's uh, about truth or, or false or right. usefulness of a methodology. I think in both ways, it's well founded the praxiological approach.
0: Yeah, I mean you brought up the three body problem earlier, right? We have three objects in a gravitational dance it the the combinatorial explosion right that happens you can't predict how those three simple objects moving through space and well-defined parameters you can't predict all the motion uh going forward so it's like well what makes you think you could predict a human that has trillions of variables and inputs and biases you know it's it's like the three-body problem extrapolated to the highest degree so of course like to just be rational and you have to be humble in front of that right. uh and i think too that you mentioned freedom i the axiom of action is something i've been thinking about because victor frankel had the final human freedom right which he said that we always have that gap every human has that gap between their circumstances and how they choose to respond yes. and that's yeah. that's the freedom that no one can remove yeah. even if you're in solitary confinement and being tortured and beaten, you've taken all your freedoms have been taken away. You can still choose to respond positively yeah. to the prison guards, yeah. which he did. Right when he was actually in internment That's, camp, yeah. he uh, and he saw other people doing this as well, and they fared much better. Um, yeah. And that idea that you do have this, we have this fundamental human freedom, seems to accord its well accord itself well with the axiom of action Mm -hmm. that you can't ever say deterministically what a human's going to do. So you might as well assume they're free. So that kind of maps onto Viktor Frankl's final human freedom. It's very anti-totalitarian in the sense that you can't have totalizing knowledge. Yes, Like the axiom of action almost proves that you can't have totalizing knowledge. Like, because just tell me what this human's going to do when I say the word elephant, you know, like you don't know, you can't possibly know. Um, and it's also very pro humility, so just taking this humble approach to complex yes. phenomena. Um, so, all that, I don't know, that just seems like anyone that, when I hear determinist or the scientific materialist arguing against free will, mm-hmm. it's like, well, if you just present these arguments, it's like, how do you, how, you could not call it free will if you want. You could say it's all deterministic, but we just can't see it. But, like, what's the, what's the value of that statement? You're just saying that determinism exists where you can't actually prove that it exists. Mm -hmm. So what, like, you see what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't seem to to serve any end. Yeah, so you might as well just say they're free. Because even if they're not free, you can't tell me deterministically what they're going to do. So Mm -hmm. you might as well assume they're free.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, that that was Mises' approach as well. Yeah. Uh, If it'll be an endless metaphysical debate, it's useless Uh, Right and can be figured out. I mean I was still I think you can be curious about the mental processes and then you can use the neuroimaging uh, and so on uh, we now know that a lot of it has been wrongly interpreted in this kind of like we've refuted free will mm-hmm. know, with our experiments uh, but uh, of course we never know it it can be that we can get one day a complete image of the mental process right. and then be, Able uh, to predict uh, patterns? Uh, I don't think so. I think there are uh, like physical reasons uh, uh, that it doesn't work like that. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, but uh, yeah, if those are metaphysical questions. You still can be curious about them yes and go uh, about it in this way. But Mises took the humble approach of saying it's an open question, yes. and let's just
0: talk about what we can know, right, rather than what we can't at this yeah. time. That makes a lot of sense um i want to ask you about so we talked about language math is effectively a language as well um we know that language largely is metaphorical like the way it's how we physically interact with the world is how we create words and phrases you know the word to understand is like to to stand beneath to get a deeper perspective on something we often use metaphors like uh you know the concert is past or or the um the event is in front of us you know so we're like metaphorizing that something these events are spatially related to us but they're actually in time so we're using metaphor all the time and then money too is like this language and I'm not <laughs> These means of communicating, right? Yes. And, and a metaphor, the word metaphor actually is a metaphor. It means to carry over, right? To look yes. at something in a new frame. And so we're using words to, I guess, frame human conceptions. We're using math to frame these sort of universal patterns or abstractions. And then we're using money to frame human action or economic, mm-hmm.
1: the economic consequences of human action, perhaps. That come from Kalminga, the... Equivalence between uh, money and language—that both have so there's something similar. Yeah, say uh, spontaneous orders of cooperation, and it's best to understand language uh, as uh, arising out of interaction and being useful for interactions. So it has something to do with action. Uh, yes, and there uh, is of course, is the end or intent is to communicate and cooperate uh, with other people. Um, and uh, but it's not a top-down thing. It's right. like it emerges. It to to, has to prove itself uh, in these actions, uh, and uh, that's a strong interest that Wittgenstein takes in, in like seeing what language actually is. Uh, and he sees the language mainly as activities. He thinks they're like he calls it games. Uh, mm. Maybe a bit misleading. Uh, he thinks language is mainly games. So don't look too much at the words themselves. You can't like take them apart as elements. Look at what they do in the situation. So they follow. Of course, language itself can be a game. and follows some rules. Yeah. You want to achieve something, uh, but every kind of discourse, uh, talking uh, with each other, can be game. Games of distraction. It can be a game of communication, a game of cooperation, yeah. a conflict game. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So, and I think that's a good uh, frame to look at it. Uh, and that's a similarity with money as well as kind of protocol infrastructure for interactivity. Plan.
0: That's fascinating. Uh, so a question I want to... I don't know Is there's a question or just an idea to explore. But like we talked about math... Within the confines of mathematics, a self-contained language system, you can define a perfect circle. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if... It, is, is it possible, and that's an ideal, again, right? It doesn't really exist in the real world. Is it possible that something like Bitcoin is an idealized money? Like, have we created an ideal within this the language of money itself that we've created something that fully or almost fully embodies all of the things we want in money, just like a circle
1: is, you know, all sides equal descend from the center type of thing? Um, I, I don't think so, and Menger thinks neither. He thinks uh, those kind of protocols can only be discovered, uh, mm. and it's almost impossible for us to create it. Uh, and the reason is this interactivity, which is a very complex thing, it's a reflective thing, mm. and it's figuring out if it works for us. There's something intersubjective. It's not entirely objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a title, it's subjective. I can want it as much as I like. If you mm-hmm. don't understand me, it doesn't help. Mm-hmm. So it's a fit, but it's a real fit. It's something real. This connection must work or not. And there's mm-hmm. a way to say if it works or not. And to plan it uh, in advance is impossible. You have to figure out if it works. Uh, uh, and usually, uh, with language, you figure out a the way. Have you understood me? Have you mm-hmm. used the right words? I uh, got to improve my vocabulary, yeah. other new words, or figure out, oh, wow, and uh, that's the most interesting thing. We're using the same words, but... You know, a sign, say anything. And that was an important insight by Wittgenstein, of course, but by others as well, that he thought most of philosophy turns around using the same words for different concepts, uh, and it's why they endlessly talk about <laughs> and, and they never reach a solution. Right. And he's right. like, okay, hey, yeah, it's haven't figured out the language <laughs> uh, there's <laughs> a broken broken social consensus on the yep. word itself yeah yes. so people just talk in circles
0: yeah right yeah yes. what um so is bitcoin
1: discovered or invented then i think it's discovered well it's discovered uh uh it's a very typical innovation uh, which means it's a gradual process. As it attaches previous innovations mm-hmm. in a new way. Yes, it combines previous innovations in a new way. Uh, very hard to see from the beginning. Uh, so even for the inventor, it's not obvious how it's going to be used. If it's really the bigger thing or not. If it's just an experiment. Uh, and I, I learned about Bitcoin very early, too early, uh, and and. Uh, uh, at that early stage, it, I thought it was impossible to see the potential. I even asked cryptographers at the time, uh, the university, uh, mm-hmm. uh, how they would assess that. And then I asked two, and uh, both said, no, forget about it. It's not a good solution. Mm-hmm. and there were, there were good reasons for that, to right. not see the potential. Uh, so I, I don't think you can plan it in advance, uh, um and uh, i don't think it makes sense to assume that satoshi nakamoto is a kind of predictive genius uh, is a great innovator mm-hmm. uh, in that sense but it's still uh it had to work out in reality and and it takes a while and we're still learning and we're still early and we're still figuring out trying to figure out what is this thing right. what it is useful for what is just uh, an idea that's not really working out people are not understanding i mean it doesn't help you if the, if the ideal thing so yes. but no one gets it yeah. and we're right. still uh, more or less at that stage it seems like yeah. and then you start thinking okay are people stupid yeah how's <laughs> going you thought a lot of does it take you but it's better to approach it no it's a discovery it. you gotta yeah. discover it and when you're ready you discover yes, it yes, yes. i
0: can predict it. it's an uneven process right yes. Yes. and yeah the, what's the quote that um talent hits a target nobody else can hit genius hits a target nobody else can see mm-hmm. so i actually agree and no disrespect to satoshi but he's not a genius in that sense because there were a lot there's a long tradition yep. of uh the cypherpunks that saw the target or right? any yep. the separation of money and state many had taken their shot and missed mm-hmm. he's the one that finally took the shot again building on prior innovations yep. combining them yep. in the right way took the shot and maybe hit it Se- hopefully seems like it's going well so far now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor crowd health crowd health is a bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance now let's face it legacy health insurance is an absolute scam nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian chris rock
1: this insurance you got to have some insurance you got to. That's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't
0: happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default. And it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay Server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay Server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to WasabiWallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Um, what? So is it? If it's discovered, then is it something? Could it be something as significant as the wheel or fire or like you know? We a lot of people. Yes, are accused of maybe even hyperbole in talking about Bitcoin in this way. But it seems like you know I, I've analogized it to the number zero, that you kind of get these occasional one-time yeah. discoveries that are so simple, yet so significant in their their implications, and you don't really know until there's some hindsight um, mm-hmm. there. But is it possible that Bitcoin is this
1: ideal discovery of an idealized? It's market. definitely in this class of innovations. Uh, It's called the Carrier Technologies uh, by Schumpeter. can call it protocol innovation. And they're like carriers for new innovations because they use them as a rail. Uh, It's like a new way that makes new things possible. Uh, So it's in that class of innovations. We'd see if it's a protocol that's adopted or not, and that Really, unfortunately, it doesn't only depend on how perfect the protocol is. Right, right, right. It depends on a lot this person-to-person, peer-to-peer yes. discovery. Yes. Figuring out, this is a fit for my ends and my concrete. Right. Thing. Can I approach the means? Can I see? Can I understand it? Uh, and that boils down to, to Menger's uh, major insights into how oh, it's, uh, economic change happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this reminds me, I think at the end of Human Action, Mises makes a point that if a particular tool is more useful, like there's a shovel that is lighter or better for digging holes, like that tends to outcompete in the marketplace. Like mm-hmm. everyone mostly will end up using that shovel because it's superior. But he said it's not that's not true of ideologies or social constructs, right? It's more about who's selling it, how well they're selling it. Yeah. And so money's a weird one because it exists between these two worlds. It's like there is a physical instantiation typically of money but it's also very socially constructed like language mm-hmm. so I'd, i'm not like mm-hmm. how does that competition actually work in the sphere of money like does it does the better money always out compete or do we actually have to
1: evangelize it properly or is it both yeah, better for whom uh, is one question and better yeah. for what uh, is another question uh, um,
0: i guess when i say better i mean for the end indiv- individual life liberty property kind of
1: yeah, there's a long-term optimism. I mean, we've seen the outsized importance of good monetary protocols and structures in the past, uh, and uh, I think it's completely underrated how important money protocols have been, uh, not only for material wealth but for culture uh, uh-huh. in particular. A lot of like the cultural centers of Europe's are nodes in a monetary network. Uh-huh. And it it needed this monetary infrastructure to bring together people, goods, ideas, and get all the network effects of bringing people together. So it's about bridges, uh, money bridges people, like language can bridge gaps between people, uh, make us understand, and that's why it has this outsized importance. Uh, And yeah, in the past, we had uh, monetary protocols that were not perfect and Mm -hmm. idealized, but for a phase, we could... uh, distinguish better and worse forms of money and we could see that uh, better protocols lead to better uh, results, uh, uh, mm-hmm. but still, I mean, it's a very short-term uh, time in here yeah. we can look at uh, um, uh, and, 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 and we'll see. Makes a lot of sense that Bitcoin is uh, the better, best available protocol for the world we live in right mm-hmm. now and for the challenging challenges it brings in a different world it may be different so right it, it can be that so bitcoin is such a good fit because the world is as bad as it is as her yeah. <laughs> like maybe without all that fear money yes. interventionism it wouldn't need something like bitcoin it would be like something right simpler <laughs> <laughs> that would work as well and, and do it uh, yeah presumably if we're on a gold standard that
0: worked Bitcoin wouldn't be that big of a deal, right? Because yeah. it probably wouldn't have grown yeah. in terms of purchasing power so rapidly because currency wouldn't be getting debased so quickly. Yeah. We'd probably have a sounder, more peaceful, more prosperous world. Yeah. So it would be hard for this thing to get attention maybe yeah. in a gold standard. But the fact that things are so bad, so divisive, so dark makes Bitcoin really shine bright yeah. in, in comparison. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and as always with technologies, like with organisms, it's uh, wrong to assume that evolution leads like to I think the best thing or the fittest that oh, right. is, is is a wrong assumption. It's, it's a good fit for circumstances, and but yeah. really moral uh, answer to it. gay uh, okay, of course it has importance uh, as a protocol for human beings, so we tend to attach something moral to it. That better working is also a better the moral sense, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be. It's- no, let's just spin on the usefulness for the means <laughs> for the instant yeah, yeah. yes yes yes
0: um, so you make a great point like money, like language, like math again another one of these linguistic structures that are language protocols perhaps it's connecting people obviously connects us across space in the present moment but it's also connecting us across time right you can move purchasing power into the future, we can make investments, we can form economic calculation over long periods of time to participate and collaborate in very large enterprises. You know, And one of the main, and this gets into the concept of time preference, right? Where if your money is depreciating very quickly, this isn't the only uh, Influence to time preference, obviously, but it's a major one. Mm-hmm. If your money is depreciating very quickly, then you're incentivized to consume rather yeah. than invest. Yes, and vice versa. If your money holds purchasing power, you're more incentivized to invest rather than yeah. consume. So, the nature, I guess, when we talk about time preference, which is a big topic in Bitcoin, we immediately get into the nature of incentives mm-hmm. and. It's a very much an open question to me. Like, how much do incentives actually shape the general patterns of human action that we see in the world? Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe I could just ask you first, like, what are incentives? Kind of That's kind of hard to define yeah. actually. And then how much do they influence human action? And then is is it the only is it the highest point of leverage we should focus on? if we can't change human nature and you can't change the world, well, maybe you can change how the two relate if incentives are a a good point of leverage. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess kind of a a three part question, defining incentives, um, you know, to what extent are the influencing that action? And then
1: is that the highest leverage point we should focus our engineering efforts? Yes. I think there's one uh, wrong conception about incentives. Uh, It's that they work so well because we are determined by Material interests, right. uh, and that's uh, usually interpretation of, of uh, mainstream economics uh, would argue that a large part of economics actually looking at incentives, uh, uh, but they assume it's because it's that's a predictable pattern. Right? People are materialists. Determinism. It's yeah. a kind of determinism. Yeah. You know? And it's wrong. Still uh, looking at incentives makes sense. It's the bono. I mean for for whom uh, does it bring an advantage? Uh, But then of course we see we have to define what kind of advantages we look at. And the more universal the benefit we look at, the better it works as a conceptual device. Mm. So of course I mean it could be beneficial uh, for you to have blue flowers and as you're personal preference Mm -hmm. but by looking at that incentive and then often blue flowers wouldn't help that much because it's not very universal Mm -hmm. so usually we talk about money Mm -hmm. and anything yeah of course because money is the material thing it's the Mm -hmm. opposite as money is very spiritual thing Mm -hmm. and that's why it's universal it doesn't tell you what you need to get so you can Mm -hmm. be altruist and you still need money you want to help lots of people you need money Um, And the same is, I mean, maybe weaker, sometimes stronger incentive is legitimacy, attention, Mm -hmm. praise. uh, And yeah, that's useful to look at. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, what does he get out of it? uh, It's this thing, but it's only the get out of it. With all the differences we have, we look at the most universal ones and money is one of the most universal means to... Various different ends. Right. That's why incentives, in particular monetary incentives, uh, mm. work. If you look at lots of people, if you look at one person, no way to predict. Right. There's no way you can say now. Okay, if I'm offering him a thousand euro, he'll do that no. for sure. You don't know me. It right. can be that it's the opposite. I stand up, go out, say, "Okay, hey, you're this kind of guy." Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, and things like you, there's no way to predict it. Mm-hmm. So if you look at lots of people and uh, you know, we have all, all these variations, you look at very universal means, you get a tendency. I mm-hmm. it could be that one person doesn't change, does the opposite. Yeah. But if you're like thousands of people, you see, at least for more, it'll, they'll be in a situation where the marginal benefit of the offer is just the way that they don't change their behavior. They don't change their preferences. Yeah. Uh, but it just fits their preferences so well. It's right. uh, okay. Yeah, because of course, having a thousand euros more uh, than not is better. Yes. Uh, and then I look at like what I uh, have to give up for it and people have different preferences. So the approach of the Austrian schools, why do incentives work is because people are so different. It's not because we are all the driver and when you have lots of people, you have so many different that for sure there's someone who's just on the edge, who just really needs these thousand euros. Like right. that, this, he was waiting for that, he yes. needs it. Yes. It's like the cancer surgery of his child and his yeah, yeah, yeah. 99,000 raised and his yeah. thousand, yeah. yeah. And then of course, then you say, ah, of course he was determined. <laughs> right. No, not at all. So that's the reason why it makes sense to think about incentives. If you can look at lots of people and I think particularly important institutional design. It's better like to have institutions work because you count on a lot of people being intrinsically in a situation where you say, "Okay, that's good for me." Yes. So it's not against their interests. And It makes sense because it's very hard to establish rules against the interests of people. Mm-hmm. Because I I know you want something else, but yeah. I still I make you, and then yeah, you have to control people, um, which yeah. has a
0: cost. One thing that came up for me there, as you're saying that circling back to an earlier point that Mises argues that social cooperation is like the universal means. Money, I guess, is a reflection of that, right? It's a manifestation of social cooperation. Because if you are stranded alone on an island, all of a sudden that money is worthless, right? There's no one to trade with. There's no social cooperation. But to the extent that you're integrated into a functional trading society, the money is like a universal means, right? It's an option on anything the market can produce.
1: So there's a that's an interesting connection yeah. there. Yeah. Of course, explains the focus of Mises on money, whereas the yeah. important monetary theorist, and he was at the time also recognized as the world authority on international monetary structures. vessels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's why he calls the largest part of economics, catalectics, uh, mm-hmm. comes from exchange, uh, bridges between people.
0: Mm. Then what is... So we can't know so incentives work because people are different they have different preferences and when we say what is the influence of incentives on human action are we then saying okay over the widest set of people this is the thing that we can say with the most determinism yeah, will influence them it's not
1: influencing them though it's, uh, it's uh, not
0: influencing it's,
1: but yeah uh it shouldn't be. I mean, if you really try to influence people with incentives, usually it doesn't work. It's sometimes used in companies, uh, like you get a bonus. Right. Uh, I want to. Uh, and uh, that doesn't work that well. Uh, and the reason is that we adapt. Uh, wow. Because we think, okay, of course, then if I don't get the bonus, I'm punished. Oh, okay. So it's a new baseline. We adopt a new baseline. Data, said so They please. say, Okay, I got a bunch of people, I, I dangle my dollars, and they'll do everything, and there'll be incentives. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, once they get used to another standard, you have to come up with more and more and more, and then, of course, we have a monetary right. problem of where's all the uh, ex- uh, exponential value coming from. Uh, there's, uh, uh, now, sorry, when I think about this, though, I think about
0: a central bank, mm-hmm, right, that can Print money out of thin air effectively under a legal monopoly. Those dollars can then be doled out arbitrarily, right? Lent to corporations or helicopter money, whatever. And then that money can be used to create real jobs for people. So, all the, like if you have an yes. institution that can centrally counterfeit currency, can't, I mean, they can directly change the patterns of human action in the sense that yeah. they can create jobs that were not there before. And so people waking up going to do an activity every day mm-hmm. that they would not otherwise do if there weren't a legal monopoly on currency.
1: Well, there's a lot of change necessary for that to happen, cultural change and uh, surrounding, because there's nothing that makes a person take a job, mm. need a job, want the job, every kind of job. Uh, the natural baseline is, you no, know, someone offers me Kind of fancy papers to do something I find nonsensical, unethical. I said, no, right. Uh, No, thanks. (laughs) Why should I uh, do that? So I must be in a situation of need and really think that, uh, uh, but usually it's legitimacy much more so. It's like uh, you get a job comes with legitimacy. And of course, there's a big salary then as well. But it's not like I'm a fool now, then be like a prostitute, of course. Sure, sure. No one really says that. Isn't that cool you've got that much money there? Uh, right,
0: no, I agree, I agree, I agree. But I'm I'm thinking of, like, very standard blue-collar worker that's sort of in a pernicious yeah. situation where the existence of the central bank is also stealing, his purchasing power, yeah. right? Making food more expensive, gas more expensive, so... He has more of an incentive to take whatever job he can get, yeah. And then maybe the jobs that are actually being made available to him yes. are different, right? Uh, there's less blue-collar work yeah. available, more yeah.
1: government bureaucracy work available. Yes. So it it's a vicious circle. Yeah, was mainly from indebtedness. Indebtedness makes people need to take any job. Right, hold on to it, yes, <laughs> and be really under the authority of a boss, and, yes. and so people realize it's a win-win, or uh, should be a win-win thing, uh, so it's more a structural change, and mm-hmm. it dissipates for society, it's not directly the money thing, it's not like, oh, you know, people are materialistic and they see the fancy signs, it's a cultural process of adopting that mindset, uh, uh, and it's much worse because it's it's hidden, uh, uh, and it goes over time, yeah.
0: Um, but there's some connection to the material incentives, though, because you use the word indebtedness. Yeah. Would you agree that fiat currency incentivizes people to go into debt? Yes. Of course. So we're actually, by shifting the incentive yeah. landscape, you're causing more people to become indebted, which puts them more into that. Position. So
1: you have lots of people who like marginal adept in the preference structure say, yeah, if it's a bit cheaper, the debt, I will take it out. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm sure. Uh, circumstances also need the legitimacy for that. So i don't look like a fool everyone yeah. else is doing it or course, i got a loan uh, that's how you yes. do it uh, stuff so it needs a gradual process uh, and uh, sometimes you realize okay there's everything there's this uh, marginal law the marginalism is part of the austrian school mm. it's like you can't extrapolate you can't say okay we'll increase debt and everyone will be indebted right we have a lot of distortions uh Happening, um, mm. um, so uh, it's it's not obviously that you can extrapolate. So the increasing uh, increased indebtedness is not just uh, producing more money; mm-hmm. it's all the side effects uh, uh, of the monetary distorted monetary systems, distorted uh, legitimacy systems, then mm-hmm. also cultural change uh, that um, I think generally a lack uh, and and and. Uh, Lack of competence or mm-hmm. valuing competence. Uh, well, of course, just getting people jobs and, and not thinking uh, uh, that it's that important right. how well they do their job. Uh, and it's it's uh, of course there are incentives in a sense there are always some people ready to go for that uh, yes there are people that would go into prostitution and right. we have different levels and different contexts it's, it's not that they are worse people in a sense but like, they are yeah. different contexts and so you get, like everyone was ready to do it at a certain price you get them if you lower the price you get more and more people yeah. if that is for free you have much more people not right, that one hundred percent. Right, fortunately, it doesn't work like that. That would be deterministic. It's like, why aren't you in depth it's, uh, as well? And that and, uh, and you'll see, and then you ha- you can even have counter-reaction, because in mm-hmm. your depth, uh, uh, zero interest depth, of course, at least there's so many distortions that it can out know, to counter-reactions.
0: No, it's a great point. It's hard to to disentangle. I'm reminded here to, I think this is in Hoppe's book, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism, where he argues that the rate at which you violate private property again i'm not determines but influences the rate at which society morally decays right because you're you're rewarding Mm -hmm. a non-productive political actor yes right for taxing you or inflating the currency they're just stealing from you yes they're being made richer in this system more people are copying them emulating their strategy and on the other side, the, pr- the victim, the productive market actor, yeah. has less of an incentive to be productive yeah. because they're keeping a lower percentage of the fruits of their labor. Mm-hmm. And so over time, this shapes yeah. the actual path of character development, mm-hmm. culture, morality. Yeah. And so again, is that, yeah. is that uh, incentives interacting with morality or perhaps ethics
1: through this yeah. material dialectic? Uh, that's the long-term change that I would uh, um, dif- differentiate. Now, it would be deterministic if like, the short-term effect is always there. Right. And there's a long-term effect. I'm not sure if it's really the material thing. I mm. think it's at least as important as the dissipating change in the social structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, because uh, at first you... Get only people who are ready to take the re- reward uh, mm-hmm. and do something that you wouldn't usually do. At the margin. But they are elevated at a certain position. <clears throat> right. And it's not just they have a salary for doing something immoral and stupid and right. incompetent. It's You get all the legitimacy when right. it is oh, it's a proper job and you just don't understand it and uh, it's a diverse... Uh... Uh, employee and and, um, and and things like that. And you need that as well because otherwise it'll look foolish. I mean, still, I mean, if everyone uh, behaved as they behaved before uh, and the mindset was the same, uh, if some rich person comes around and pays you a million dollars to do something very stupid and immoral, still people will criticalize you and won't be adopted as the new success model. It's right. only over time, a gradual, gradual process. Uh, uh, and that's the thing that we are not all the same. There are, and that's uh, an inside of Hayek as well. Intellectuals play an outside role. And those are like the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. the narratives, the legitimacy structures. I mean, who is a fool for doing something? Who is a fool for missing out? Who are the serious people? Mm-hmm. like the real ones, of course, not prostitutes, mm-hmm. because they have proper jobs and proper trainings. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and so on, and, and that's a lot of narrative change. Uh, uh, and of course, it's if you have some narrative change that uh, having a lot of fiat money income in a job is something great and successful, mm-hmm. then people will tend to copy it, and you'll be proud of your father. and right. He gets a million dollars uh, for selling bullshit violating uh, the integrity of other people. Right. It ever And no one ever found something distasteful about that. Yeah, of course. And you think how to follow in that pattern and see, I want to be as successful as my dad's. But you had that uh, always, uh, and so it's, I think, more the structures, uh, but of course, the material, the very universal means can explain a lot, and a lot of people can be the context where they say, I can't be choosy. What occupation I take, if there's only prostitution left, I'll be a prostitute, nothing bad about it. (laughs) It's a need, I can survive, I can uh, um, make my child survive, and yeah, that's a bad situation. Doesn't come out of the incentive, uh, right? The structure of the society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I hear what you're saying. Like, there's a there's a preference structure at any one point, and they're just going to respond. But maybe in the long run, that preference structure is sculpted by the options available, which have to do with material incentives. Yeah. Um, that's interesting to think about. Then, so on the third, I guess first of all. The third point of the question was, is that where we should focus our energies like as a point of leverage, trying to restructure the incentive systems, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously money being perhaps the most motivational mm-hmm. system of them all. Yeah. I'm not sure which one's more effective. Mm-hmm. Is that like, you know, in Bitcoin circles, we say fix the money, fix the world. Is that like where we should focus our energies to have this outsized return and- mm-hmm. If not, then where? Where should we be focusing our our energies?
1: Yeah, uh, the continual Hans Hoppe, as you mentioned, I think he gave a great uh, advice. And if you're talking about like changing legitimacy structures and narratives, he thought the most important thing you can do is ridiculeize. Uh, but in a sense, it's not like mean. It's just like showing that the emperor has no clothes. Right. Just speaking it out. And, and they fun make, of the satire. Making fun uh, of the right people. Yeah, in <laughs> a sense, not taking yourself too seriously. So yeah. just say as it is. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. He's supposed to be successful, but look at what he's doing. <laughs> he's yeah. coming from. I oh, really, oh, really do. His, his arguments are the presumptions uh, yeah. are for that kind of job or that kind of position or that kind of narrative structure. Yeah. Twitter's great to this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's <a> part <laughs> of it. uh, Or the appeal of it, yeah. But then again, I, I'd be very about answering questions like, uh, what could we do to change? Again, I think it's you can't really plan it. Uh, okay. It can go wrong. If you're really good at that, Beat it I think you can be a good Twitter troll if you like yeah. that and this, I, I think it's okay <laughs> yeah. I am not uh, had a kind of uh, victim mentality where you say oh my God he made a bad remark on Twitter how evil or yeah. how terrible is that person uh, I'd say you know for some communication Styles people are good at that they can be very sarcastic and that yeah. can be hurtful yeah but it's I think your risk your life risk if you're on Twitter Twitter, yeah. you can be hurt that, That's <laughs> right. part of the language game. Yes. Twitter. Uh, yeah, it'd be good at that do it. I, I, I wouldn't say it's like mm-hmm. a uh, universal means uh, for all ends to be a troll on Twitter. <laughs> right. uh, so there can be other reasons to have a different style. I have a different style to communicate uh, with the, different ends. Uh, um, I, I think it's already generally the idea that how can you change the minds of people? Uh. Um, I think it's better to assume that they have their ends and if they have some ideas, uh, maybe some of it is, is complacency, of course, and not mm-hmm. caring about ideas, just mm-hmm. repeating uh, what they've heard, uh, so then I don't take it too seriously. I mm-hmm. don't think you're an evil person because you repeat you parrot, uh, <laughs> an evil idea of legitimate people, um, uh, or, uh, yeah, you have interests that are opposite to mine, and, you know, that's fully or unconsciously, you're aware of that, and uh, that's why you pursue some ideas. So change rather comes from different ways than convincing a majority. It's like mm. I, I don't think there's a foolproof strategy. How do we win the 51? Right. It's like this perfect communication strategy, right. even the perfect ridicule, a strategy, the perfect argumentation by Hans Hoppe. Right. It's not gonna make uh, that happen, and the reason for that is change never ha- never happens that way. No, five percent to change, and then the fifty-one percent eventually get it. (laughs) Right?
0: Yeah, that's a great point.
1: Okay, so I'm
0: very interested in this relationship between, I don't know, human being. Like, I've almost taken the position, and I don't want to sound like a determinist, but it seems like there is a significant extent to which we, like, are the way we are, our character, our morality, our be- patterns of behavior and action—we they are emergent from. As uh, a theme, we've touched on a lot here, right? The technological paradigm we inhabit, the incentive structures we inhabit—that we are in feedback with the world, a world that we create, right? So, what do we say that we create the world, and in turn, the world creates us? Like we're constantly in this feedback loop. Yeah. And so the question is like, okay how do we create these structures such that we can optimize ourselves and the process. And now one of the things we hit on today is okay, social cooperation is this universal means Like no matter which end you're pursuing, you almost always need social cooperation because it gives us all these amazing things like productivity and division of labor, et cetera. Um, you also just need more people to do bigger projects, right? Like you can't do everything yourself, you need more hands, many hands make light work. Social cooperation is optimized under conditions of private property, as Mises argues, right? The the history of civilization is inextricably linked to the history of private property. So does that mean private property is a universal means in a way that that it helps us access social cooperation?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a protocol as well, uh, and you can look at rules. Of course, a kind of software of leading yes. together. Right. And I think private property is a good rule, a very uh, simple one. And and the aspect about private property is its spheres of responsibility. Uh, right, uh, and I, I think that's a very good rule to have differentiated spheres of responsibility. Uh, and have the capacity to say no to something. That's the essence for uh, Mises. uh, All the advantages of of, uh, efficiency uh, doesn't come really from the market. It's based on private property. It's based on you saying, no, that's mine. I don't want it. You offer me something. No. Sorry, (laughs) I don't need it. I don't like it. And it's this feedback that helps us. That yes. information, because then now it's trial and error. Now we can figure out something. Right. How do we get win-win? Yes, yes. Without yes, that, yes, no yes. prices, no calculation, no efficiency. Yes. All goes to waste. Yes. Something stupid that I don't need. I as you yes. don't need a uh, right. mismatch, and we all angry. Yeah. Really no, angry right. at each other. That's no. right. And that it's the word that keeps producers
0: honest too. Yeah, Because yes. if I'm the only car dealer in town and you're negotiating with me, I'm like, you got nowhere else yes. to go. I'll sell it to you whatever exactly. price I want. Okay. I'm a monopolist. Yeah if i know you can say no
1: and you can take your business to my competitor next door yes then i'm going to deal with you in good faith yeah and based on that protocol the most important change agent then is the entrepreneur promoter i mean it's bad wording yeah, yeah. that's mises maybe it was like yeah. promotion it's selling an idea right you you are a part of a change that you bring about but by offering something new And by making people aware of it uh, and it all depends that they can say no, and and it's a good change because it has the discipline. Of course, they can not, a lot of uh, good innovations are not seen Mm -hmm. by a potential client, but still it's the best way to go about change. It means try to make it as modular as possible, make a very small change, Mm -hmm. make it uh, obvious to other people how it's a good fit for their ends Mm -hmm. and get their voluntary consent. Mm -hmm. Mm It's, there's a good checkpoint. From that, you can scale. Then you can have more change. Right. Uh, it's not perfect, in particular if you have a distorted structure. But it's a good advice usually if you want to have change. know, for the entrepreneurial ways, uh, based on humility again. As I try to come up with something useful, very small thing. Uh, because it's small because I got to figure out if it's right. really right. the right strategy or Yeah. If it's really useful, it got to be big. It does become big uh, uh, later on. So the advice would rather be for change go the entrepreneurial way uh i think it's a good it's a polite way <laughs> it's a better way uh, and uh, if you don't see that way open uh, something really bad can happen and that's what uh, eric fergelin thinks is at the basis of most of conflicts and uh, political craziness uh and he calls it an um, anoya. Uh, and he thinks it's a mismatch between your soul, he says, and the order you live in. Mm. So it's like, a, it, it doesn't fit. It's terrible. I have this great idea how it should be. Mm. It's not like that. And then I have my model. I look at the world. I say the world is shit. Mm-hmm. People are shit. Uh, uh, and then it's a terrible mismatch. Uh, it leads, he thinks, it's a pathology, it's a sickness of the soul. Mm. It's, it's an inflammation of the soul even. It's, mm. it, it's an inflammation of the soul uh, and then you do crazy stuff uh, to heal to deal with that inflammation wow. and I think it's it's a very astute observation and how uh, these ideological movements mm. uh, yeah. have come about uh, and his advice is to find a good match between your soul and the mm. world as mm. it is, not as you like it to be right. can um, be ready to accept <laughs> The way things are, the way human beings are, that some change takes time. Yeah, uh, that if you don't know for sure if it's the right way. Uh, still, doesn't mean that you don't have values. Uh, it just uh, makes you help it understand well, can what can I change, what uh, can't I change, and and be, become uh, be in a productive situation to uh, the gap, the mismatch between right. what you'd like to see and how the world is. Uh, because if it's too far apart, then you become the utopian. That creates a new world mm-hmm. and it right. starts to hate the world as it is and that's a danger yeah, you want to get rid of everything you want to destroy everything so that mm-hmm. my shining idealized yeah. world can emerge uh, uh, and it really turns into a uh, violence uh, And uh, there's there's a good term that comes from Freud. He hasn't used it properly. I think it's this uh, Thanatos uh, as opposed to Eros. Eros is striving for life. Also Hayek uh, uses this, uh, the living, as you want living, the flourishing. The Thanatos is the death drive. I hate the world so much. I won't have kids. I dislike you. Everyone should commit suicide but myself, of course. Uh, uh, Let's reduce our footprint to zero, uh, stuff like that, uh, I think it comes. Uh, I think it's correct to see it as a kind of pathology of the soul. It's an inflammation. There are good reasons for that. Right. So um, I think we should be compassionate about that inflammation. In particular, the young can be afflicted by it with all the craziness yeah. around them. But still, it's a serious condition. And and yeah, take care that <laughs> this doesn't lead to anti-social behavior like politics. Yeah, it
0: all seems like. Many of us go through that phase when we're young, right? You look out onto the world and you think this is wrong, that is wrong, and you feel almost like a revolutionary Mm -hmm. orientation to the world. And and you get a little bit older and you start to realize there might be some wisdom in the way things are structured, um, even if there are still changes that are necessary. It's a great point. So just to try and put a button on this, uh, social cooperation is the universal means, private property is the institution, that facilitates the greatest degree of social cooperation I think is a pretty fair statement to make. And then superimposing that onto Hoppe's argument that the rate to which we violate private property is the rate that which we drive the moral decomposition of mm-hmm. society. Yeah. What is the value? If, if Bitcoin is something... I don't want to say it's inviolable private property, but it's probably the closest thing we've ever had to it. You know, it's something that you can truly own independent of anyone else's opinion or any institution, any political authority. Is it possible that that creates a feedback loop in which we become better? Like a more incorruptible basis of private property leads to a more, if violating private property decomposes us morally, does really strong private property help us build ourselves up morally?
1: Yes, I think one aspect is pushes for responsibility. Yes. Uh, and for a lot of people, it's too much to feel the burden of it, like really owning something. That's a really good point, it. by the way. It's we always say private property, right? But it's equally a responsibility. Yeah, if you don't take care of the thing you own, and yes. you don't have the thing you own. Yes. Yeah. 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 You <laughs> you can't. Uh, have other people bear the costs and you're destroying the thing that you've been responsible for. Yeah, um, And uh, yeah, so in a sense, it pushes for it. Uh, still, mostly it doesn't change people. It's just people who don't like that kind of responsibility. Hey, mm-hmm. find a way to like make it different, make a better Bitcoin, mm-hmm. use custodians, use that thing, use paper Bitcoin, mm-hmm. or not use it at all. Just mm-hmm. hate it for what it is <laughs> because it is like it, uh uh, but over time, it can be a gradual push. Then, but it's, I think it's a cultural shift. You see people going for it, you see how it changes them or it helps them express uh, uh, what they could be. Uh, and you said, Yeah, it's not that bad. I've met now the fifth Bitcoiner, and he turned out to be even not a psychopath, <laughs> a pretty <really> reasonable person. <laughs> uh, and I think that's uh, how hard. And I, I could try it as well. It's, <laughs> yeah. It seemed to be evil, uh, it seems feasible. Uh, it's worth it uh,
0: yeah and to the earlier point too where if bitcoin continues to function properly then its purchasing power goes up so it's a successful economic strategy that other people would emulate mm. right like yes. oh these bitcoiners are becoming richer yes. what are they doing and so then you get this shift right it's like well they're not consuming as much they're going to church they're having kids they're working out In all these things that Again, general patterns of action you've seen Bitcoiners kind of tilt towards that that might, I don't know, it's all very speculative, I guess. But it's interesting to think about these feedback loops, I mean, between the systems and ourselves. And like, if we change the system fundamentally, does that change how we look over time? Yes, yes.
1: Yeah, short term, I say it's mainly selection. Yeah, but long term, it uh, changes the cu- the culture changes around it, and it's mainly about what's legitimate. Uh, yeah, you know, who is considered successful? Uh, is it really just the price? Uh, right. action you have taken, or something else? What have you done with it? What have you done with the wealth? How, know, how does it show right. how useful you are as a person to other people? Uh, uh, and, and things like that. And that's a gradual long-term change And there, of course. Uh, calls would change it. Uh, and, and yeah, it changes incentives in that sense, of course. Other people, they emulate.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. We didn't talk about that today, but uh, Rene Girard's work on mimetic desire, very interesting stuff. We're always imitating one another. And then I guess maybe we'd get different mythologies, right? It's a technological change. Is that just like the hunters and gatherers have different mythologies and the agriculturalists that someday will have different mythologies about digital world i Mm think it's very interesting time to be alive (laughs) uh rahim this has been awesome i've kept you for too long as it is um i'm really glad you're able to join me I'll, we'll link to all these papers in the show notes i love reading this stuff it's always blows my mind how much thought has been paid to these kind of nuanced complex areas but I mean, these papers are old right there's what 40 50 60 year old papers and um you know as we've touched on a lot today these things change doesn't happen evenly so you know people were looking around the corner to some extent to changes that we're experiencing now but they wrote about them you know decades mm-hmm. ago so i appreciate you recommending them uh do you have any closing words for the audience and if not can you let people know where they can find you on the internet
1: yeah i have an institute uh in uh, vienna it's called Scholarium. s-c-h-o-l-a-r-i-u-m not a-t uh, but it's only in german uh, on the- Teaching is in German. I prefer that to go for a niche. Use the native language and, of course, the language uh, many of the books and papers how the tradition uh, were written in. Uh, I have many projects. You can see me in many Bitcoin conferences at the time, so I do a lot of lecturing uh, in English as well and teaching uh, in English. You can follow me on Twitter. I think that's the easiest uh, way to get in touch with what I'm thinking about, writing about. Beautiful.
0: All links to your Twitter in the show notes and Thank you again for doing this. This was awesome. Thanks for the (laughs) pleasure.